eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. On February 29th, 2000, in the small, rugged town of Aberdeen, Australia, 45-year-old mother and grandmother, Catherine Knight, stabbed her living boyfriend 37 times. Then after showering, changing, withdrawing $1,000 out of his checking account from a local ATM, she skinned him, hung his skin up on a meat hook, cooked up various parts of his body with the intention of feeding him to his own children. Why in God's name did she do this? Why would anyone do this? Because uh, he wanted to end their relationship. And why did he want to do that? Because he was literally afraid for his life. He and everyone else in the small town where he worked in a mine knew that Catherine Knight, a woman he'd managed to get out of his life once before, was an absolutely psychotic, extremely physically abusive, very dangerous person. After getting caught, Catherine became the first woman to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in Australia's history. In fact, the only reason she's even alive today is because Australia abolished the death penalty. And today, we examine her mean-spirited life. Catherine is a woman who reminds us that horror knows no gender. A woman can be every bit as murderous and terrifying as a man. So let's head, finally, down to Australia and suck on Catherine Knight, a a real-life Annie Wilkes of sorts, Kathy Bates' character in Misery for you Stephen King fans today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Sucker. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. This is her month. Hail Michael motherfucking McDonald. Bard of the suck and praise Bojangles, that one-eyed, three-legged pit bull hellhound who defends a suck like none other. Um, Dan Cummins, the Master Sucker, the Prophet of Nimrod, and you, Cult of the Curious member, are listening to Time Suck. And Time Suck is brought to you today by the Jim Jeffries Show podcast. How perfect. An Australian topic brought to you by an Australian show. A dark Australian topic brought to you by a dark Australian comic. Uh, The Jim Jeffries Show on Comedy Central covers the most controversial issues of today through Jim's distinctive no fucks given 
brand of very adult comedy and his global point of view. And the Jim Jeffrey Show podcast is even uh, an even more unfiltered version of the hit Comedy Central show. Listen each week as Jim Jeffries and co-host Forrest Shaw sit down with friends and guests to discuss news, politics, and all the things Jim uh, couldn't, wouldn't, and shouldn't say on TV. So subscribe now to the Jim Jeffries Show podcast. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday on your favorite podcast app. Uh, thanks, everyone, for the continued reviews and constant spreading of the suck at shows. I keep meeting time suckers who have spread the suck to their entire office or their precinct or their unit station together here or overseas or their, or their frat or family. Everyone gets to learn new shit and share new and old jokes. Fun and learning. Doing it community style. I love it. I uh, keep hearing about how much fun people are having in the Cult of the Curious Facebook group as well. Uh, we have a link to that in the episode description. Love all of it. Have fun, meet sacks. Learn and have fun. Why else are we here? Uh, no touring this week, but touring hard in November. Kicking things off immediately in Columbus, Ohio. Three shows in Columbus, uh, Friday and Saturday. One on Friday, two on Saturday. Uh, let's let's do it. Let's get there. Helium Comedy Club, Buffalo, New York, November 8th through the 11th. Then back to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Shows at Dr. Grin's November 16th and 17th, including my last live Time Suck podcast of 2018 on the 17th. Right there at Dr. Grin's. And then... I head only about 30, 40 minutes from the Suck Dungeon to the Spokane Comedy Club on November 29th, 30th, and December 1st. And then Helium in St. Louis, December 6th through the 9th, and then that's it for 2018. Uh, Links to tickets in the episode description. I'll announce 2019 dates next month. Uh, Quick shout out to a time sucker now uh, and need some help. And then then on to our topic of the day. Uh, Stephen Watson wrote in to let us know that Hurricane Michael Fucking devastated him, saying, Hello, Grandmaster Sucker. I'm a huge fan of the show and was just wondering if I could get some good vibes sent my way. Yes, uh, done. Uh, my name is Stephen Watson. I live in Panama City with my wife and two boys, two and four years old. And you know that area was devastated, and I happen to live in the most affected area. My family has lost everything. Our roof is gone, ceiling, windows, flooring is gone as well. Any good wishes sent our way would mean the world, as just listening to your show makes me feel better. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, full permission to mention all my info on the show if you choose to. I also set up a GoFundMe if that could be shared. Uh, yes, the link to uh, Stephen's GoFundMe campaign is in today's episode description. And Stephen says, P.S., I also love your stand-up bit on the Las Vegas acid trip. Cracks me up. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Man, to even be thinking about anything like that while you're going through what you're going through. Uh, sorry to hear Michael hit you hard. Uh, yes, that link is in the episode description. And I hope you start uh, you know, uh, getting things put back Together, hope that's already happening now in your life, man. Hail Nimrod, positive vibe definitely being sent your way, and uh, and I hope a lot of help is uh, coming your way as well. Now, on to a story where the where the man who needed saving was sadly not sheltered from the human storm known as Catherine Knight. Today's story takes place in Aberdeen, uh, Australia's surf capital. Where the waves are as tall as, uh, as as the beach guys and gals are ripped. Ah, oh, hang loose on Aberdeen. Just kidding. Aussie suckers. I know it's not there. I know that Aberdeen is not on the coast and is uh, and is a bit of a desolate, depressed little uh, berg that has definitely seen better days. One may one might call it a shithole. Uh, I think uh, I think you have to understand a little bit about the culture of this town and the culture of Australia in order to really wrap your head around today's crime and understand how it could even occur. Uh, hard to do the research this week because you know. You should know Australia does not exist. It's not real. So there's, you know, that makes things that makes researching things uh, that happen in Australia difficult because it's uh, it's part of the Illuminati round earth conspiracy. So wake up, sheeple. Okay. 
Did you even know that's a real conspiracy, by the way, that Australia does not exist? Yeah. There are people uh, raising families, voting, having jobs, who think Australia is fucking nonsense. Uh, you know, I guess they just believe that uh, any Australian anyone's ever met, just a paid Illuminati actor or and or lizard person. Insanity. No, Australia is real. So is Aberdeen. Uh, Aberdeen is located in the Australian state of New South Wales, a state on the southeastern coast of Australia that was founded as a British penal colony in 1788. New South Wales has a population of almost 8 million people, making it Australia's most populous state. And almost two-thirds of its residents, a little over 5 million residents, live in or around Sydney, and half of those residents are kangaroos. Uh, Not true, but awesome if half the population of Sydney actually was kangaroos. Just so many kangaroos just inexplicably insisting on living in an urban environment. Just condos full of kangaroos, bouncing, boxing, doing whatever the hell kangaroos do. Uh, Prior to British settlement, Aboriginal tribes had settled the area over 40,000 years ago. And then when the British showed up, there was an estimated uh, 250,000 Aborigines in the area. Uh, The European discovery of New South Wales was made by Captain James Cook during his 1770 survey along the unmapped eastern coast of the Dutch-named continent of New Holland, now Australia. Uh, In his original journals covering the survey, in triplicate to satisfy admiralty orders, Cook first named the land New Wales— Named after Wales, however, in a copy held by the uh, Admiral, uh, uh, he revised the wording to New South Wales. And then a few years later, the initial colonists of this New South Wales showed up as part of what is now known as the First Fleet. The First Fleet is the name given to the first 11 ships that departed from Portsmouth, England on May 13, 1787 to found the penal colony that became the first European settlement in Australia. The fleet consisted of two Royal Navy vessels— Three storeships, six convict transports carrying between 1,000 and 1,500 convicts, Marines, seamen, civil officers, and free people, few of them, to a land no uh, European had attempted yet to settle. These convicts were people uh, – did I say convicts? Yeah. These convicts were people who had committed a variety of crimes, including theft, perjury, fraud, assault, robbery, for which they had variously been sentenced to penal transportation or, quote-unquote, forced relocation for a period of either seven years, 14 years – or for the term of their natural life. Between 1788 and 1868, about 162,000 convicts were transported uh, by the British government to various penal colonies in Australia, forced colonization. Interesting concept. Um, you know, we, we don't want you uh, here, but we, uh, but we do want that land. So we're going to help you. Uh, we're going to help you uh, by letting you help us settle it, or you're going to die trying. Uh, maybe we should try something like that when we try and uh, colonize Mars down the road. Right? You want to spend the next 40 years in prison? Or you want to find out if humans can survive on Mars? Want to spend the rest of your life behind bars? Or, you know, for smuggling cocaine? Or maybe do you want to try and smuggle enough cocaine to Mars to be high for the rest of your life up there? That would be hilarious if the first video of a colonist from Mars just shows them just ripping rails up in there. Just, you know, just nat- amazing. We are live. We are connected to the first permanent colony on Mars. And it looks like, uh, hey, hey, wh- what are you? What are you doing? What are you? Are you smoking? Are you snorting cocaine right now? Ah, fuck yeah, man. Every hour on the hour. We've, uh, we've been celebrating not being dead yet. Could, could you at least stop doing drugs uh, while we're running the video? This is a live feed. I could, but I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, you know why? What the fuck are you going to do? I'm on Mars. What, are you going to arrest me? What, are you going to send some, some officers, some narcotics officers to fucking Mars? Yeah. We're going we're to snort this entire video. Uh, maybe we should not colonize Mars with prisoners. I just think about that, man. You send them up there. It'd be so easy <laughs> just do whatever. I guess they can do whatever they want, but what are you going to really do when you're in like one tiny little bi- biodome in Mars? 
But anyway, I got way off track here. Uh, this is this is how Australia started out. About around twenty percent of modern Australians are descended from transported convicts. But it's important to note that the stereotype of the initial Australians being murderers and rapists and child molesters. That kind of criminal criminal is not true. Crimes like rape and murder in the 18th century were punishable by death. So that type of criminal wasn't a candidate for transportation, was never put in the boat and sent to the land down under. Do you come from a land down under? Women glow and men plunder. Hey, can you hear, can you hear the thunder? Oh, yeah. You better run. You better take cover. Gotta love some men at work. Come on. Colin Hay, if you don't like Colin Hay, well, fuck you, okay? I know that's aggressive, but he's a fantastic musician. Actually, he was touring through uh, Northern Idaho, uh, Sandpoint, a while back, and I missed him. Very sad. If you ever get a chance, by the way, uh, Colin Hay, um, now I'm blanking on the name of the song. It's one of these uh, old men and work songs, but if they used it as this, uh, the theme song for Scrubs, the acoustic version. It's so good. Anyway, most of the criminals who committed petty crimes like uh, I listed earlier, generally they were just poor people stealing clothes or food to get by. Sometimes their crimes were related to political protest or religion. Among the first group was a 70-year-old woman who had stolen cheese to eat. Why would you send her? Send that cheese bandit to the island. Chain her to the ship. She's really going to help us get that first colony going. Doing what? She'll be lucky to live through the journey. And then what will she do? Build, build the first homes? Dig out the first gardens? Hey, she'll, she'll, you know, help us find the, the first cheeses. We need cheese, and no one finds more cheese than Nance McAllister. Now, these convicts were chained beneath the deck during their entire hellish six-month voyage. The first voyage claimed the lives of nearly 10% of the prisoners, which remarkably proved to be a smaller percentage than, uh, than future journeys. On later trips, up to a third of unwilling passengers died on the way. Guess, uh, guess future prisoners weren't as tough as Nance McAllister, the Cheddar Queen. From England... That first fleet sailed southwest to Rio de Janeiro, uh, then east to Cape Town via the Grand Southern Ocean to Botany Bay, arriving between January 18th and 20th, 1788, taking 250 to 252 days to get there. The initial spot those very first Europeans anchored their boats onto on January 26th to prep a launch of colonists into the continent was named Sydney Cove. And uh, I guess it would be onto the continent. But anyway, and the city of Sydney is, yeah, is the site of Australia's first is the site of Australia's first colony. According to the first census of 1788, as reported by Governor Philip to Lord Sydney, hello, Lord Sydney, uh, the, British, the British population of the colony was 1,030, and the colony also consisted of seven horses, 29 sheep, 74 swine, six rabbits, seven cattle. Seem, uh, seem low on, on rabbits. Uh, I guess rabbits breed a lot. Seem a little bit light on cattle, but you know they're big, hard to transfer. Uh, as, go- as governor uh, and governor Phillips reported the demographic breakdown of that initial group, there were 548 male convicts, 188 female convicts, 17 children of convicts. There were also 219 Marines and crew, 34 female crew members, 24 kids of either Marines or crew members. That seems like a horrific initial dude to woman ratio. 548 male criminals, 188. Female criminals. Ah, that seems like a recipe for a lot more crime. Um, These initial colonists did not have it easy. Male convicts were taken off the ships first. They cut down trees, put up tents for people to live in. Men also unloaded the animals and began planting seeds for food. Female convicts finally allowed off the ship 11 days after the men. Uh, These women also had to to work to set up an initial place for everyone to live. 
You know, it's hard work and heat the British weren't used to experiencing in January. Temperatures in the 80s, Fahrenheit. Uh, could also be super humid. They were building a new community by hand. They didn't exactly have bulldozers and forklifts or even table saws or nail guns, you know, long ways to a Home Depot. Wooden huts were built first, followed by storehouses for the food, hospital, government house, home for the governor and the church. At first, everyone was just happy to be off the damn boats and on dry land, and initially, relations with the local tribes were peaceful. But then, as the first few months unfolded, the harsh reality of the colony's isolation began to set in. There had been glimpses of hope and happiness, such as several marriages and the births of at least 30 children. Fertile farming soils were found at uh, Parramatta, 15 miles, uh, 24 kilometers upstream from Sydney. A settlement, second settlement excuse me, was started on Norfolk Island. Some of the initial convicts in Sydney then began causing problems, though. Uh, along with sporadic theft of stores and belongings and numerous runaways, the newly bonded community of castaway strangers was rife with drunkenness, dirty deeds, and a, quote, carefree approach to sexual relations. Heathens. Filthy, godless heathens. Just fornicating on the beach. Just getting drunk and probably just just taking their dirty, sex-filled ways just right to the streets. Just taking it to the streets, taking it to the, taking it to the streets, taking it to the streets. No more need for running. I, I got the melody off. No more. Ah, now I can't get it back. Now I can't get it back. I'm sorry, Michael motherfucking McDonald. Hail Triple M. Sweet white-haired bar to the suck. I had to do that because, you know, I sang the Men at Work stuff and then, you know, Triple M got jealous. I, you know, pulled out that Colin Hay earlier. And then I ruined... Uh, no more. Uh, now I can't get the melody in my head. Oh, well. Oh, well. Early 1789, uh, early January. A convict was hanged for repeating acts of armed robbery. That would suck. You get arrested for theft in England. You decide, decide not to hang you. Then you sail for months, chained to a boat. You make it to a country where you have to build a new town from scratch, only to then get hanged. <laughs> also, what a slow learner. It's like, dude, you were just given a chance not to die, and you blew it. Four other convicts earned a uh, hundred lashes each for a three-day absence from work. I feel like a hundred lashes might end up causing you to miss a few more days of work. Not sure how you pop out of bed, you know, just early, just bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to go when you get a hundred lashes the day before. But what do I know? You know, maybe I should start lashing Joe Paisley from time to time. See if he gets more or less work done. It'd be a fun experiment. If it's more, maybe I get lashed myself here and there. You know, that'd kick up productivity for the whole, for the whole crew. Add a new task to Lindsay's uh, weekly f- workflow. But enough about lashes. Some of the first livestock brought over died of disease. Others were literally struck by lightning. <laughs> no one saw that coming. God, when you, when you bring like a few animals to a new land, you got nothing there. And then the animals start getting struck by lightning. I feel like you got to know that A, God exists. And B, God hates you. Uh, unfenced cattle started wandering off and disappearing into the bush, into the outback. Uh, also, surprise, surprise, some of the convicts they brought over were not actually amazing at farming. Who would have guessed? That people with no experience farming would be bad at farming, especially when work with a, you know, with a totally different soil composition than what they would have used in England when they had to work with that. Uh, you know, uh, who, who, who could have seen that coming? Hey, let's bring a bunch of uh, convicts and just, you know, make them uh, start awesome farms. Also, some of the Marines, once they realized what their life is now going to be like, when they finally did the, uh, the men to women math, their little ratio math there, got a little dispirited. And then uh, they became a little negligent in their overseeing of the convict's duties, you know. Just go farm some more or something. I don't care. I'm going to die alone here. We're all going to die alone here. John just stares off, expressionless into the middle distance. 
Uh, also, after about two years, Sydney's food supplies were beginning to seriously dwindle. Provisions shipped on that first fleet had run out. Storehouses have been ransacked by rats, become rotten and damp. Not surprisingly, a store provisions vanished. Local stocks of fish, fruit, marsupials, bird life grew increasingly scarce from rampant overharvesting. Violent encounters with Aboriginal people became commonplace as convicts chanced upon uh, stealing their stuff to get by, and they didn't care for that. But despite these hardships, the community survived. Many of the convicts did work and did build a new community in a new land. Initially, convict work was focused on the basis of survival and shelter, clearing land, cutting trees, farm, forming docks, tracks, bridges, fortifications, gathering materials for storehouses and workshops, you know, get, getting shingles, logs, saplings, rocks, mud, sand, oyster shell mortar put together, convicts building their own houses, some in neat roads, others jumbled on the rugged shelves of the rocks. Convicts also hunted fish, collected oysters, vegetables, and tea gathered from the bush. By the mid-1790s, uh, the colony's future is starting to look brighter. Convict labor uh, directed towards larger-scale agricultural production. Throughout the decade, a series of expansive government farms were established to experiment with crops, train farmers, most importantly, bolster the government's grain and vegetable stores. The new colonists were pushing inland, and that push would lead to today's town of Aberdeen. These inland farms were often dangerous places to be as their expansion into Aboriginal lands west of Sydney triggered frontier warfare from the 1790s through to the 1810s. Uh, convict farmers, as both perpetrators and victims, faced mounting hostility, but these farms had to be created if the new coastal colonies were going to become self-sustaining. Sydney and the other new coastal colonies needed more than fish to survive. They needed crops, they needed livestock. And so after those first ships of convicts and Marines proved that this new land wasn't, uh, was conducive to supporting the lives of the Europeans settling it, uh, Britain began to gain the interest of wealthier citizens to invest in Australia. Right, The hardest work is done now. Those first convicts had built the first few communities. Roads were carved out of the land. Towns were fortified. And those first settlers, the ones who survived, they were some tough people. Uh, I got a kick out of reading a few of their biographies. Just, just, just two, just real quick. Check this out. John Limeburner lasted until 1847 after showing up in one of those first boats, 1788. The South Australian Register reported in an article dated Wednesday, November 3rd, 1847, John Limeburner, the oldest colonist in Sydney, died in September last at the advanced age of 104 years. He helped to pitch the first tent in Sydney and remembered the first display of the British flag there which was hoisted in a swamp oak tree, then growing on a spot now occupied as the water police court. He was one of the last of those called the First Fleeters. John Limeburner was a convict on the Charlotte, convicted on July 9th, 1785 at New Serum, Wilshire, of theft of a waistcoat, a shirt and stockings. He married Elizabeth Island in 1790 at Rose Hill, and together they established a 50-acre farm at Prospect. He died at Ashfield in September 1847 and is buried at St. John's, Ashfield. Just like we talked about in the Roanoke suck, man. How cool that must have been to build a European-style town where nothing existed uh, like that on any scale when you first showed up on this continent, right? Like, like there will never be uh, a human experience comparable to that again until we start colonizing other planets. Uh, one more first settler bio. Elizabeth Betty King, maiden name of Thackeray. Uh, tried and convicted of theft on May 4th, 1786 in Manchester, sentenced to seven years transportation for picking up two small butterscotch candies off of the street that belonged to the child of a local minor nobleman who had lost them the previous day. Uh, I don't know what a crime was, actually. I do know that in uh, August 1800, she bought 10 acres of land from Samuel King at Cascade Stream. On January 28th, 1810, Elizabeth married fellow First Fleeter, Private Samuel King, lived with him until his death in 1849, Betty King died in New Norfolk, Tasmania, 
On August 7th, 1856, at the age of 89, she's buried in the churchyard of the Methodist Chapel in, in uh, Back River next to her husband. Uh, and the marked grave bears a First Fleet plaque. She's one of the first British women to land in Australia and the last First Fleeter to die. And those last First Fleeters, they lived long enough to see or at least hear about the founding of Aberdeen and the surrounding area around Aberdeen. Uh, Aberdeen is located 138 kilometers or 86 miles northwest from Newcastle, Australia. Newcastle being situated on the Pacific coast on the southeastern side of Australia. And Newcastle is 167 kilometers or 104 miles up the coast north from Sydney. And in 1828, 37-year-old Englishman Thomas Potter McQueen, the wealthy son of a doctor who had married the daughter of a noble estate owner in Bedfordshire, obtained a grant of 10,000 acres from Sir Thomas Brisbane. Uh, I guess it'd be Brisbane, the Scotsman who uh, Brisbane, Australia is named after, uh, with the provisional reserve of a further 10,000 acres. Uh, he'd sought after this land as part of a British plan to develop uh, large-scale farming and ranching in the interior of its new territory of Australia, using a combination of convict labor and wealthy British colonizers. Early on, England realized that it needed to send more people other than just convicts and Marines to watch those convicts if they really wanted this new experiment in colonization to work. So the next year, 1829, Thomas appointed Peter McIntyre as his overseer and entrusted Peter to, uh, you know, select and, and, and develop these lands. And then a, a carefully chosen party of mechanics, farmers, shepherds, equipped with farm machinery, stores, sheep, horses, stud cattle, sailed in two chartered ships, the Hugh Crawford and Nimrod. Seriously, one of the ships was called Nimrod. Hail Nimrod! The glorious God of the suck is clearly personally guiding us through today's episode. I am but his humble and or mentally unstable servant. And the passengers aboard Nimrod reached Sydney on April 7th, 1825. On McQueen's behalf, McIntyre chose as his grant 10,000 acres in what is now known as Hunter River Valley, uh, naming it uh, Sejinhoe after his employer's birthplace. Under McIntyre's guidance, this new community quickly developed into a thriving agricultural estate. His work was continued by H.C. Sempill, who followed him as manager in 1830. McQueen's venture of 1824 was the first direct shipment of free immigrants to New South Wales, and it solved that huge initial problem of, ha- of not having a dependable supply of wheat and meat. You need that meat, you need that wheat, wheat meat. Uh, between 1825 and 1838, McQueen spent at least uh, 42,000 pounds on plants, stock, and improvements on Sejinhoe, firmly established the Hunter Valley's reputation for efficient agriculture, during the drought in 1827 18, uh, through 1830, Sejinhoe was the main source of grain for the whole valley. About 160 convicts were employed at Sejinhoe. McQueen brought uh, some of their wives and families as well, numbers of them later becoming tenant farmers on the estate. Several of his employees, including the McIntyre brothers Peter, John, and Donald, uh, Alexander Campbell, and Semphill, became pioneer squatters in the New England district. At the promptings of McQueen, the government laid out the township of Aberdeen in 1838, and the road to Sejinhoe became part of the Great North Road. So that's the beginning of Aberdeen. Little center for wheat and meat for Australia's uh, early settlers. And the primary employment in this new little town quickly became slaughtering the meat, and that job and industry will will lead directly into today's tale. Uh, Today, less than 2,000 people call Aberdeen home. Many of them retire. There aren't the jobs there used to be. Prior to 1999, beginning in the mid to late uh, 19th century, the town was home to a number of large abattoirs or slaughterhouses. In 1999, a Chicago-based uh, packaged foods company called Con, uh, Con- Conagra decided to shut down all of its new, uh, yeah, all of its New South uh, Wales abattoirs, uh, gutting the little town of Aberdeen. Uh, pun intended. After accidentally writing it to start. Uh, prior to that, four generations, Aberdeen's primary primary employer, my God, 
its largest employer by far were these slaughterhouses. And after that, it was the cattle ranches and farms around the town, a few mines, copper, coal, uh, gold, and more have been mined over the years around uh, Aberdeen in the, in the state of New South Wales. The area became around Aberdeen, excuse me, the Hunter Valley has also become somewhat famous for for horse ranches, like high-end horse ranches where very, very expensive horses are bred, like uh, horses that cost over a million bucks each. And today those horse ranches, cattle ranches, farms remain. But prior to that, primarily a slaughterhouse town. Abattoirs, man. Everybody's working in the abattoirs. Catherine Knight worked in a, a variety of abattoirs. Uh, more on that in a bit. And Aberdeen was a rough town. like So, you know, that's, that's important to today's story. It's a rough town, very blue collar, uh, formed by rough people. You know, and blue collar doing like, you know, some pretty gruesome shit. You know, needed stuff. But, you know, slaughterhouse. Uh, slaughterhouse town. And, and all of that, you know, g- gave it a culture, which I feel like I can relate to. It reminds me of the stories I heard about my hometown in Riggins, Idaho, when I was a kid. Uh, I know Riggins personally as a little tourist town. That's what it's been to me in my lifetime. A town where people pop in, float down the Salmon River, you know, do some whitewater rafting, have some snacks, have some sodas, and then get out of town. But back in the 70s, going back decades before that, it was a little logging town, very rough. Our slaughterhouse was a sawmill. Uh, my dad worked there for a few years. My grandpa and great-grandpa worked there for most of their working lives. There was only uh, you know, a few bars in town, all of them dive bars, especially in the 70s. Most everyone in town, you know, uh, who were single or or at least maybe not married of, of legal age, you know, which was 19 at the time to drink, uh, you know, probably under the age of 50, would just get fucking hammered a lot of weekends in these bars. Probably a lot of married couples did too. And my, my dad has tons of tales of various bar fights. I mean, this is a town where they would uh <laughs> they would just wait for like college kids traveling up from Boise State, you know, through town or down from uh, you know, University of Idaho and just beat them up for being quote unquote hippies. <laughs> just literally just beat the shit shit. <laughs> well, I guess maybe not literally beat the shit out of them, but they would, yeah, they would uh slap around. Tons of tales of fights all starting also because, you know, like this guy was sleeping with that gal, you know, who just was dating this other guy the week before. And all that leads us to the backdrop of today's tale. You know, dating options, very, very limited in Riggins, still are, but used to be even more so prior to traveling out of town on the weekends being the norm, you know, with better cars and, you know, vehicles and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, just culturally things shifted to people like not staying in town as much, you know, and, and especially dating was m- much more difficult prior to like Tinder, Facebook, any kind of social media. You know, back in the 70s, a lot of the town worked for the same employer. They drank from the same handful of places and they dated from a very small pool of people, especially small when you consider how the norm was to marry young. So there were only a handful of non-married women in their 20s and 30s at any given time in these towns like Riggins. Like truly maybe like 20 probably tops. And from that small group, you know, only a few who would actually you would describe as being physically attractive. You know, just a numbers game. And I imagine the same culture after after doing this, uh, you know, research existed in Aberdeen and may still exist there. You know, it's a little bigger than Riggins. Had about 2,000 people at the time of our tale, but, uh, you know, as geographically isolated as Riggins. Uh, you look at a map of Aberdeen, there's not a lot around it. Mostly just more little towns like Aberdeen. I mean, there's Scone, 16 kilometers, 10 miles to the north. Now, there's about 4,000 people there, but still not, not a lot. There's uh, Kurindai, hours drive to the north. It only has 2,000 people. It's uh, 55 miles, 89 kilometers away. There's Mus- uh, Musselbrook, uh, roughly 12,000 people, 15, 20-minute drive to the south. Uh, and the closest actual city with a few hundred thousand people is Newcastle, you know, which is a two-hour drive away. But again, prior to dating apps, social media, it was hard to get out of town and uh, meet people to date in nearby communities and then convince them to move to your little town if it did go well, especially if you're hitting the bar scene, you know, why risk a drunk driving ticket uh, and some other town having to drive back from that where you can just kind of stumble home from the bar in your little town? And these little towns, I imagine, too, are kind of like Riggins, very territorial, where it's like, 
You know, there's uh, New Meadows is an hour's drive from Riggins. Grainville is an hour's drive from Riggins. But the way my dad would describe it, you know, the, the locals didn't take kindly to some dude from like Grangeville coming into the Riggins bars and trying to hit on the Riggins women. I imagine there was some of that in Aberdeen as well. And, the, and in the local bar scene of Aberdeen, you know, undoubtedly not many dating options. And for several years, one of those options was Catherine Knight, you know, the, uh, the main character in today's tale. And what a terrible option she was. She was incredibly violent and abusive, but in a nation built on being tough enough to settle it. And I've met enough Australians over the course of my life to know that there very much is a, is a tough guy culture within Australia. You know, what, what kind of guy is going to let uh, a woman intimidate him? And I know that's a sexist attitude, but it's very real. A lot of blue-collar men would be too embarrassed to leave a woman because she was physically intimidating. Uh, I probably feel like it would be a, a sign of weakness. Now, uh, all right, now that I've uh, established some context, now that we know a little bit about her town and the, and the, and the country she lived in, uh, let's hop into a time-suck timeline of Catherine Knight right after a word from today's sponsor. Today's time-suck is brought to you by Madison Mike's Meat Shack. Been a while since we heard from Madison Mike, not since the Ed Gein episode. Madison Mike is very selective with his episode, just like he's very selective with his meats. Madison Mike sends the best meats on the market from his Wisconsin butcher shed right to your home. He's got head meat, leg meat, chest meat, face meat, eyeball meat, finger meat, puppy meat, wean meat, clean wean meat. You name it, Mike's got it. He's also running a special right now in Australian. That's too far. That's too far. It's, It's too soon. It's too soon, Mike. It's too soon, Madison Mike. You know what we're talking about today. And he's not a real sponsor. Today's Time Suck is uh, actually brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, options, cryptos, yeah, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, all commission-free. You hear what I'm saying? Commission-free. And the app is super user-friendly. I've been playing with it for about a month. And, uh, you know, even if you're a stock market newcomer, you know, like I am, I really haven't done much, you can invest for the first time with real confidence. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees at all. Zero. Uh, how cool is that? What that means is, you know, you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Hail Nimrod. And with the clear design and easy to understand uh, charts and market data, Robinhood lets you place a trade on your smartphone in just four taps on your screen. Or if you're on the web, you can view stock collections like 100 Most Popular, as well as sectors like entertainment, social media, more curated categories like female CEOs. Plus, you can discover new stocks and track favorite companies with a personalized news feed. What I like most about Robinhood is how informative it is. Uh, I searched uh, Bitcoin from within the app, and it gave the option of linking over to tutorial on how to buy, sell, and trade in cryptocurrencies. I also like the layout of the app. Very easy to use, you know. Uh, see how your overall portfolio is doing, how much cash you have. You know, it's easy uh, to, to figure out how much you have, you know, free to invest with. It links to your bank account super quickly. And Robinhood's given listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, Sprint, help you build your portfolio. I got one when I signed up. Uh, so fun to get a free stock. Who doesn't like prizes? Who doesn't like free prizes? Uh, so sign up at timesuck.robinhood.com. That's timesuck.robinhood.com. Link in the episode description. Make your money work for you, time suckers. And now on to today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. All right, time-suckers. Now we're getting into it. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. Today's episode. October 24th, 1955, Catherine Mary Knight was born the youngest of twin twin girls in the 4,000-person town of Tenterfield, New South Wales, five hours to the north of Aberdeen. Her mother was one Barbara Ruffin and was married to Jack Ruffin, 
And uh, while born in Tenerfield, because Aberdeen probably didn't have a proper hospital, uh, they were living in Aberdeen when she, uh, you know, where she gave uh, also gave birth to four sons prior to Catherine. So they they weren't really living up in Tenerfield. That's just where she happened to be born. And then a year or so uh, before the birth of Catherine, uh, she began uh, her mother began this affair with Ken Knight, a friend and coworker of Jack Ruffin at a local slaughterhouse. And pretty soon, everyone in town knew. The affair causes a big scandal in the small conservative town. Of course it does. Barbara and Ken's families are well known. In the fallout of the affair, both Barbara and Ken end up leaving town, relocating to Maury, uh, New South Wales, four hours north of Aberdeen, where Ken found work at another slaughterhouse. I got a little confused there for a second. So Catherine, when she was born, yeah, no, she didn't live in Aberdeen because her mom left Aberdeen uh, you know, under the scandal of having an affair with Catherine's dad. So – Barbara, this is crazy to me. Her mom, uh, interesting character. Barbara left all four of her sons behind when she moved. Her two elder boys stayed with her father, Jack, while her two younger boys were sent to live with her aunt in Sydney. Catherine's father, of course, Ken Knight, you know, this guy and Ken and Barbara ended up having four kids of their own. And Ken is described in numerous articles as basically a complete piece of shit. Uh, They don't use that exact phrase, but he sounds like a huge loser. Violent alcoholic who would allegedly rape Barbara multiple times a day. I said that in numerous sources. A few sources said Ken would, quote, uh, rape Barbara in front of the children. Dear God. Can you imagine that being part of your childhood? I hope you can't. I really hope you can. Uh, Barbara uh, would occasionally make light of her injuries by explaining to whoever inquired about her freshly battered face that her husband would, quote, knock her out for sex, which is not how uh, sex is supposed to happen. So like many violent people, Catherine is raised in a home of violence with her twin sister, Joy, and her two younger brothers. Supposedly, Barbara often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. Uh, Years later, when Knight uh, uh, complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex act she did not want to perform, Barbara told her to put up with it and stop complaining. That's another quote. Put up with it and stop complaining. Barbara sounds like she was never in the running for mother of the year. Uh, what terrible mom advice. You don't you don't like it in your butt? Well, tough titty. I bit down on the pillow and I took it. And if you're smart, you'll do the same. D- don't you think I should at least talk to my partner about what feels good to me and what I enjoy to see if we can work out a healthy sex life that can satisfy both of us? You don't think that's the best choice, mother? Sweetie, I stopped listening when you said think. Stop thinking and take it. Lie down, be still, try and relax. Just know that no matter where he sticks it, he'll eventually finish and pass out. You know, they always get sleepy eventually. Uh, yeah, so Barbara's terrible. 1959, Barbara's ex-husband Jack dies when Catherine is four years old and her two boys who are living with their father now move in with Ken and Barbara. And Knight would later claim she was frequently sexually assaulted by her brothers and several other family members, though not by her father, until she was 11. Court-appointed psychiatrists would later examine Catherine's, uh, who would later examine Catherine's claims, uh, do believe her, and various family members later confirmed Kathleen was molested and sexually assaulted as a kid. So she is now being raised in a hillbilly hellhole. Mom's getting raped by stepdad. She's getting raped by brothers and more. I mean, I guess it, these allegations were corroborated. Part of me was like, I don't know, just because, uh, as we'll find out later, she she was not opposed to lying about things just like that to kind of get off get herself off the hook for various things. So I don't know. But 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 if it was true, if she really did, you know, experience this kind of childhood, it, it does help explain the rage she would later feel towards men. 1969, when Catherine's 14, her family would move back to Aberdeen uh, when her stepdad, or at least the area of Aberdeen, where her stepdad Ken got a job at a slaughterhouse near Musselbrook. Catherine and Joe enrolled at uh, Musselbrook High School. Catherine became known as something of a loner and as a bully to younger pupils. 
also known for sudden vicious rages at the slightest upset. You know, she could be calm, totally fine one second, and then rage, crazy anger the next second. Uh, at other times, you know, she, she, she was a perfect student with impeccable behavior. Catherine left uh, school at 15, scarcely able to read or write. Her first job was in a clothing factory as a cutter. At the age of 16, she landed her life's ambition uh, as a worker in an abattoir. Yeah, and that's another thing interesting about Kathleen. Uh, supposedly when she was a little kid, like her dream was to work at one of these slaughterhouses. Like she was really fascinated with the slaughterhouses from an early, early age. Now, avatar work is tough. It's a male-dominated profession. Kathleen quickly established a reputation as being every bit as tough as any of the men who would work there. She loved her job, rapidly promoted to boning carcasses, and she was rewarded with her own set of razor-sharp butcher knives. Like the avatar, you know, gave her these knives, and they became like her prized possessions, and she would hang them over her bed at night. So they were the last things she would see at night and the first things she would see in the morning. Seriously, she would do this for the rest of her life. That's a fucking big red flag uh, that someone is both insane and violent when their favorite possession is knives and they hang these knives over their bed. (laughs) That is so beyond creepy. Uh, At work, if anyone upset her, she would challenge them knife in hand to armed combat. Also a little bit of a red flag that someone's not mentally stable when they want to settle arguments with knives. No one ever took her up on this offer. If they had, she probably would have ended up in prison for a different murder than the one we'll talk about today. Uh, however, apart from her ferocious temper and rages, the redheaded Catherine had a charming and cheery side to her nature. And apparently, and this is according to numerous sources, a voracious sexual appetite. Uh, she's, a, she's a, a horny little vixen. 1973, at age 19, Catherine began a relationship with coworker David Kellett at age 20, or he was age 22. Uh, David is lucky to be alive today. It was a relationship that Catherine totally dominated. She proposed to him. He accepted. In 1944, they get married. And David later recalled that Catherine's mother, Barbara, old Barbara, mom of the year, gave him some advice before they got married. She said, (laughs) this is like your future mother-in-law telling you this. You better watch this one. She'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way. Do the wrong thing. And you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. She's got a screw loose somewhere. Can you imagine hearing that from your mother-in-law? If you if you ever do hear something like that from a potential future mother-in-law, get the fuck out. Run. Move to a different town. Start a new life. Get a new name. Uh, happy to be welcoming you into the family, David. Just a quick word of advice. Do whatever my daughter asks you to do when she asks you to do it. I'm not saying that because I expect you to cater to her every whim. I'm saying that because I'm worried about you, David. My daughter is a straight-up sociopath. She will fucking cut you. She will fucking cut you, David. She'll kill you for the slightest provocation. I'll see you at the chapel. Uh, you're about to make the biggest mistake of your entire life. Uh, and then David didn't make it very far into the wedding before he really pisses her off. On their wedding night, Catherine attempts to strangle him. Not even one night. He didn't even make it one night. Uh, Catherine became enraged because... <laughs> this speaks to her voracious sexual appetite. Because he only managed to make love to her three times before passing out. Three times on the wedding night? That's, that sounds like a lot to me. Uh, she told him... Uh, you know, that she wanted to make love all night long and she wasn't, she wasn't kidding. And when he only got it up three times, when she, when he passed out after three times on the wedding night, she finally tries to strangle him. Oh man, she would have not gotten along uh, well at all with Chikatilo, right? What is big deal? Why so angry? It's such a shame cock. What do you, you think I want this? You think I love limp sadness tube dangle between strong Russian wrestling ties? Please stop strangling me. That's my thing. I not like role reversal, I admit. Uh, you you scare me, Catherine. You you scare Chicatillo. 
On another night, uh, Dickhead David couldn't get his shit together again, came home late after joining his workmates for a game of darts at the bar, and you done did it, David. You done did it. Did you invite Catherine to play? No, of course not. Now she's pissed. Upon arriving home, uh, he opens the front door. <laughs> this isn't funny. This isn't funny. I'm just laughing at the ridiculousness. He opens the front door, right, to, you know, sneak into his own fucking house where his, you know, newlywed wife living, and she presses a hot iron on the side of his face. Like, as he, he pops in the door, psh, iron to face, leaving an imprint of the iron on his cheek. You know, as one does when their partner comes home late. I can't even remember how many times I've burned Lindsay's face with a hot iron. You know, how, how many times does it take before you learn? No, Catherine then forbade David to seek medical assistance. You know, suck it up. David does see a doctor the following day in secret, proving he's a baby. Come on, dude. Oh, I got my face burned with iron. Rub some aloe vera on it, you fucking dart plane whiner. Uh, no, this is, just, this is so ridiculous. Another night when Catherine is pregnant. He arrives home late again after a darts competition. How did you not fucking learn about darts? Catherine does not like darts. Catman, how many times do you have to tell you? You play darts or you get your face burned or worse. She's been, she's been very clear. Uh, no, David arrives home this time to see that she has burned all of his clothes and shoes. Yeah, just threw them in the fucking stove. Straight up burned his shit. Uh, and then his night gets worse from there. Yelling and screaming at him, Catherine hits him on the back of the head with a heavy frying pan and almost kills him. He, he you know, barely holds on to consciousness. He flees the house. He seeks refuge in a neighbor's house before collapsing and passing out. The neighbor takes him to the hospital where he is sent back home for being a fucking crybaby. Oh, you can't take a licking with an iron? You can't take a licking with a frying pan? How many times do you have to be hit or burned? Before you, you understand that she just doesn't want you playing darts. What's it going to take to get that through your thick, but now not quite as thick because it's fractured skull? No, David is treated for a badly fractured skull. The police are alerted. They want to charge Catherine for grievous bodily harm, but but she persuades David to drop the charges. Bye, please. Don't, don't press charges. You know, you know I didn't mean it. You know how I get about darts, David. You know, they make me crazy. I just start thinking, does he love darts more than me? And then I start thinking, is he fucking those darts? Is he? I knew it. He's making a fool out of me. He's out the bar, fucking darts. Everyone knows it but me. Baby, please, I'm sorry I just hit you again. I can't even talk about darts. Baby, I'm sorry I just stabbed you. Uh, I got to say, this episode has reminded me of what an asshole I've been at times when it comes to the notion of female against male domestic violence. I'm going to be completely honest. I have never taken it seriously. Uh, I was never really around it growing up. Only one memory of my mom trying to hit my dad, uh, but there's a good chance he deserved it. And that's a whole other story I probably should not share out of respect for uh, family members. But that's the only time I ever saw anything even close to this. You know, it it wasn't the norm at all. And even in that instance, you know, my dad didn't seem like scared. He easily defended himself. He's bigger, stronger, faster. And and I'm not, this is not, I hope it doesn't come across as cocky at all, but I've just always been stronger than any woman I've ever dated. You know, I'm not not a gigantic guy, but I'm not a tiny guy. And uh, and not being, you know, cocky, but when I was, you know, younger, I was kind of wiry, strong. And I've lived the weights off and on, you know, my whole life. And I just, and I've just never dated like, I guess, like a, like a female boxer or something like a, someone who physically intimidated me. There was one girl in college, excuse me, uh, a rugby player actually who super feisty. She would try and wrestle aggressively when she got drunk and she would throw punches, not in the face, but in the stomach. She was a little nuts. And I definitely got some bruises from her and some of those punches and unexpected takedowns for sure hurt. She was, she was fucking rugged, but, uh, but it was all in the spirit of kind of rough play. 
You know, uh, she wasn't trying to teach me a lesson or put me in my place. Super annoying. And I did on multiple occasions, you know, get upset and be like, dude, fuck, stop. What are you doing? This is annoying. But I was never afraid. I was never worried about her, like, you know, putting me in the hospital with a beating. Uh, I've never had a male friend or male family member who'd ever gotten beaten up, you know, savagely by a woman to my knowledge. Uh, and so I've always had this attitude towards women just, you know, uh, against men violence of just kind of being like, dude, come on, just just tell her to quit. Just, just get out of here. What's the big deal? This episode has changed me. I realized I've been super ignorant. Uh, I would have been absolutely terrified of Catherine Knight. So sad and depressed if, if no one took my cries for help. Seriously, if my son Kyler dated somebody like Catherine Knight, uh, I would fu- for sure step in and be like, fucking get the fuck away from him. Uh, I don't want to have hitting a woman on my life's resume, but if you fucking hit my son again, maybe. Uh, I bet a lot of people in the uh, tough guy slaughterhouse town of Aberdeen and the surrounding communities did not take Catherine's violence very seriously either. I bet, you know, coworkers and, and young, you know, husband David's, you know, friends and stuff, I bet they didn't take it seriously, but it was serious. This is not playful wrestling. This is not someone just being feisty. Catherine is a violent fucking sociopath. Uh, she almost kills David with that frying pan and she's not done. In May of 1976, 20-year-old Catherine gives birth to the couple's first daughter, Melissa Ann, and she does not handle her postpartum depression very well at all. A few days later, David wakes one morning to find Catherine sitting on top of his chest, holding one of her prized bony knives to his throat. Look of pure horror and shock, I'm sure, on David's face, uh, face. Catherine sees it, laughs, and just talks about how easily she could just kill him right now. David does the right thing in the situation, and when she's, you know, off and I guess showering up or whatever away, he fucking flees. Unfortunately, he does not take his baby with him. He leaves uh, Kat for another woman, uh, leaving Catherine with her just weeks old baby daughter, Melissa Ann, at that point. Catherine's distraught, depressed, enraged, I don't know, evil. Just days after David leaves, Melissa, little baby Melissa, is found abandoned on train tracks like a weird old-timey villain. She leaves her newborn baby on some train tracks. Like for the train to run the baby over. That is some ruthless, cold-hearted shit. Uh, Fortunately, baby Melissa Ann is discovered just minutes before a train was going to tear her into pieces uh, by a neighbor. No one saw her do it. You know, she would deny it. Everyone in town knew she did it. You know, uh, someone, or excuse me, somehow, uh, nobody alerts authorities when they find this baby. They just bring the baby back to Catherine. She doesn't get in trouble, but trouble is coming. As the days go by with no word from David, Catherine's anger intensifies. She begins to attack her neighbors with an axe. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, so many axes lately on the suck. What's up with all the axes, by the way? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, luckily, she does not hit anybody. She just uh, swings it wildly at anyone who tries to come check on her at home. And then the police are finally called. Uh, yeah, mate, uh, Catherine's swinging an axe at everyone who comes to try and check on the baby. Uh, we were just having a barbie, smoking ciggies. We didn't want to call the coppers, but crikey, this Sheila's mad as a cut snake today, mate. Uh, luckily, uh, yeah, the local police, they do come. They they take Catherine to psychiatrist at St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth. She's diagnosed as suffering from postnatal depression. Turns out it was a wee bit more than that, but okay. Uh, upon her release, Catherine demands that a local 16-year-old girl, Margaret Macbeth, drive her to Queensland, where she plans on killing her husband, David, and his mother, Jean. Uh, and to her credit, Margaret is like, uh, no, I'm not driving you to a double murder. Uh, so Catherine decides to put a little bit more pressure on Margaret. She uh, she takes one of her slaughterhouse butcher knives, forces Margaret into the car, and cuts Margaret's face so severely that uh, Margaret is now bleeding profusely. Uh, Margaret still manages to drive, 
and manages to escape a short time later when she stops to re- refill the car with gas. And I'm guessing people are like, oh, holy shit, your fucking face is really bleeding. The gas station owner calls police. When the police arrive, they find Catherine holding a terrified young boy, just some random young boy at the gas station hostage. She's waving her knife around wildly. The police officers manage to disarm her by, quote, <laughs> I love this, attacking her with brooms. Seriously. They find some brooms at the gas station. And uh, and that's how they get the knife, uh, I guess, away from her. That sounds like the way you would, like, uh, attack a pigeon. Not a not a person. Shoot. Go on. Get. Get away from that boy with that knife, lady. Go on. Shoo. Shoo. Get. Go on. Get out of here. Don't come back here. Shoo. Uh, once in custody, Catherine's taken to Morset Psychiatric Hospital for assessment and detained under their supervision. Her daughter, Melissa, handed over to her parents, Ken and Barbara Knight, and then David Kellett, after being informed by the police that his wife had been detained excuse me, under a heavy sedation in a secure psychiatric ward, he returns with his mother, Jean, to aid his troubled wife. Wrong move. Uh, Go back for the baby and then get the fuck away from Stabby McGee. In August 1976, uh, when little Melissa Ann is three three months old, excuse me, Catherine's released from the psychiatric hospital under the care of her mother-in-law, Jean. That's so weird to me. She's released under the care of the person that she wanted to kill uh, on the condition that Jean uh, ensures that Catherine takes her medication, and I'm guessing that, you know, that Catherine, you know, and she, you know, promises not to murder Jean. I'll watch you for reals, but do not murder me. You will be in so much trouble if you murder me. I will be furious. I will not try to help you again if you do kill me. Uh, once Catherine is determined to be stable and consistently taking her meds, David and Catherine decide to make a fresh start. Ah. And uh, with Melissa and Jean, they rent a bungalow in Woodridge and South Brisbane, an eight-hour drive northeast of Aberdeen. David takes a job as a truck driver. Catherine, you know, she finds a job at another uh, abattoir near Ipswich. You know, takes her takes her prize knives in and gets to boning. Back to the slaughterhouse. And the fresh start, of course, does not calm the storm that is Catherine Knight. Her violent rages begin again. And she starts beating on Dave with her fists, kitchen appliances, anything she can get her hands on. She becomes convinced that David has a woman in any town he happens to drive his truck to. One night, he returns home to discover that in one of her jealous rages, she has burnt all of his fucking clothes again. And he stays. Why? I'm strongly guessing that the makeup sex is pretty intense. I'm guessing the sex in general is pretty wild. Numerous sources refer to this in one way or another. You know, you don't, you don't get to burn some dude's clothes twice. Beat on him a lot. Send him to the hospital. Almost kill him with a frying pan. And leave his baby on some train tracks. And also be terrible in bed. It's not very likely. Uh, despite all the insanity on March 6, 1980, the couple has another baby... <laughs> Natasha Marie, David is a fucking idiot. No sex in the world is worth that much crazy. However, despite Catherine's violent ways, uh, this couple stays together for another four years. And then uh, by 1984, the marriage is broken down completely. Catherine and her daughters move back to Aberdeen into her parents' house. Uh, Catherine, you know, she gets a job, of course, at an abattoir, rents a house nearby in Musselbrook. Then a year later at the age of 30, uh, Catherine hurts her back at the slaughterhouse and she's uh, given a disability uh, pension and government housing. Two years later, in 1986, Catherine finds herself a new Dave, Dave Do, Dave Part Two. She begins a relationship with a 38-year-old divorce, divorced minor, Dave Saunders, who lived in the nearby town of Scone, a well-liked mate known for enjoying a drink at the bar. What could possibly go wrong? A few months into this relationship, Dave moves in with Catherine and her daughters, keeps his apartment in Scone, and he's happy he's done so. And over the next few months, Catherine's jealous rages rear their ugly head again. Same old pattern returns of beatings and apologies. After a bad fight, Dave leaves for his apartment in Scone, and then, you know, inevitably, Catherine would call and beg him to return. 
Ah, oh, this is bad. Ugh. In May of 1987, Catherine gets especially mad at Dave and slits the throat of his two-month-old puppy. And then Bojangles punches her fucking door off the hinges with his bionic fourth leg, uses his mouth to somehow stitch the little puppy's neck closed, saving his life. And then he drops his bionic arm, replaces it with the Gatling gun he'd strapped onto his back and turns Catherine Knight into a pile of blood and bullet casings because fuck that lady for trying to kill a puppy. Praise Bojangles. Bojangles then raises that pup as his own after pissing on the remains of Catherine's corpse. And years later, that saved puppy would give birth to my little petty pooper. No, sadly, of course, that's not what happens. Uh, Catherine slits the throat of Dave's two-month-old puppy and kills it, then tells him that's what's going to happen to him if he has an affair. Uh, And then she beats him unconscious with a heavy frying pan. That part is true. What the fuck? The only difference between this monster and one of the serial killers we've covered is a lack of interest in just killing strangers. She clearly would have no moral qualms about killing people, or at least doesn't seem like she would. Too many hours in the slaughterhouse, maybe? After years of slicing throats there, I guess, you know, uh, why, why care about a puppy? I did watch this one documentary where a former coworker talked about how, uh, you know, for a while, Catherine's job was be to actually, like, slice the throat of the cattle or the sheep or whatever animals they were putting down at the abattoir at that time. And I guess most people, you know, they didn't relish that particular duty, but Catherine did. And I guess most people would just do it really fast, try to get it, you know, over with, make it as painless as possible, painless as possible, but Catherine... Uh, Catherine, excuse me, I always want to call her Kathleen for some reason, but Catherine would, I guess, just kind of savor it, would really like take her time, you know, suppose they have a crazy kind of look in her eye, She'd fucking slice her throats, just, just a monster. And, and what does Dave number two do after Catherine kills his puppy and knocks him unconscious? He gets her pregnant. Man, makeup sex. How many lives have been ruined by makeup sex? Dude, just beat off. Beat off until the urge goes away and then start thinking with your real brain again. Beat off a few times. Beat off until the thought of sex of any kind with anyone does not interest you in the slightest because your penis is now just a fucking rugged chew toy of a dick because you've, you've just beaten all the fun sensation out of it. I feel like some of our male listeners under the age of 25 might be like, is it even possible to beat off that much? Yes, it is. It's not easy, but when you're, you know, when you're young, but you know, you can do it. You can beat that meat until it no longer holds any power over of you. There's always other women out there. You do not need to stay with a psychotic asshole. There are mentally stable women who are capable and, and very interested in having wild and crazy sex. You don't have to be with the fucking psycho. I feel like this is where that small town culture comes in, man. Catherine, uh, Catherine she, she wasn't gorgeous, but she wasn't ugly. And, uh, you know, strong sex drive. She's, she's single. She's free. You know, if Dave doesn't date her. There really aren't that many other options as far as women in this little cluster of towns around him who will be single, sexual, cool with him going out and getting hammered with his buddies from the mine at the bar. And that's why I feel like why in situations like this, maybe moving isn't such a bad idea, you know? Or maybe just being single, you know, being being alone, not such a bad idea. You know, I don't know. Go, go live somewhere where there's more dating options, less violent ones. June of 1988, Dave and Catherine have a baby, uh, Sarah. God, I hope Sarah's doing well today. Uh, what a monster of a mother she has. Uh, Dave decides, now that they have a baby together, to buy a house, you know, buy a house for the fam, for the happy fam. Probably not get a dog. Maybe, maybe, maybe wait on a dog. Uh, he puts a deposit down in a small house in McQueen Street in Aberdeen. When Catherine's compensation for the work injury that her back comes through, she pays off the rest of the mortgage. Catherine, for the first time in her life, owns her house. 
She sets about decorating it to her taste, and this shit is crazy, but I doubt it will surprise you. She hangs her prize knives above the bed. Uh, she decorates the rest of the house with dead animal skins, horns, skulls, machetes, rusty animal traps, rakes, pitchforks, a scythe dangling from a rope above the fucking living room. <sighs> she has a huge video collection, which consists mainly of films and documentaries about horror and death. At this point, I, like, I wonder if New Dave understands that she has a death wish. Or, or, or the, I mean, I mean, Dave understands that he has a death wish, you know? All the signs are there for, for her being a murderous maniac other than actual murder. You know, the, the puppy thing should have sent him running. You know, I'm just going to go ahead and say that if anyone you are friends with or, or date or are married to, if, if they ever cut a puppy's throat, relationship over, fuck counseling. Ah, no, my wife, uh, you know, Lindsay, she loves me. But if I cut Penny Pooper or Ginger Bell's throat, I'm out, as I should be. There's no apologizing. There's no moving on from that. I, I would rather have Lindsay cheat on me than cut one of our dog's throats, like easily. That's so insane. In their new home, cats' violent ways continue. Of course they do. You don't slice a, a puppy's throat, you know, one day and then just turn into fucking June Cleaver the next. Um, now, one of their fights starts with a cat cutting up Dave's clothes and ends with uh, hitting Dave in the face with an iron, the, the old go-to, the iron, and then kicks it up a notch, stabs him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Dave Im- immediately moves back to Scone. Uh, she later visits him in Scone. They fight again. She vandalizes his car. He gets scared enough to go into hiding. No one will tell Cat where he's gone. She takes an overdose of sleeping pills to get his attention. You know, gets readmitted to the psychiatric hospital. Tells the medical staff and police that Dave has been abusing her and that she's scared of him. She's the fucking devil. The court issues her an apprehended violence order against Dave, legally preventing him from contacting their children. She is a living nightmare. Uh, the more I read about her, the more I wish that there was a death penalty in Australia and she wasn't here today. Wish one of these guys would have killed her. She's a force of na- she's an evil force of nature. In some alternate universe, if the toy box killer would have kidnapped her, she would have laughed off his torture and then slit his throat. She scares me. Uh, May of 1990, 34-year-old Catherine begins a new relationship with 43-year-old John Chillingsworth, an ex-coworker from the abattoir, old slaughterhouse fuck buddy. And they quickly have a baby son together, Eric. Ah, man, she doesn't waste time. Ah, kid number four for Cat, uh, and, and, and only the first one. Ended up on some train tracks, so I guess maybe her parenting's getting a little better. As with all of Catherine's relationships, it soon becomes very violent. One night, she smacks the glasses off his face, smashes him in the mouth so hard she breaks his false teeth. And then they would stay together for, for another three years. Dad, run! Catherine never gets in trouble for any of this stuff so far. Not really. She had you know, a little, little brief stay in the psychiatric hospital. Uh, why? I, I think because of small-town tough guy culture. You know, the Aberdeen and the surrounding towns undoubtedly had. If Catherine's a dude doing this to women, I feel like... Uh, I feel like she'd be in a lot more trouble by now. Family would have intervened more strongly. Charges would impress something. But these are little mining slaughterhouse towns. No one wants to be the dude who has to have the police rescue him from his girl. Oh, man. Uh, Luckily for John, the beatings stop when Catherine leaves him uh, for a man she has secretly been having an affair with, John Price. Known by his friends as Pricey. I doubt John number one was sad to see her uh, head over to John number two. John two. First, there was Dave one and Dave two. Now John one and John two. That's weird. Uh, excuse me, John II, divorced father of three, whose first marriage ended in 1988. Uh, the youngest child remained with his ex-wife while the eldest two lived with him. Catherine had met Pricey in a hotel bar in 1993. They were both 38 and found uh, that they got along well. They both enjoyed a drink. John worked in the mines, earned good money. Catherine, as was her style and relationships, started out well-behaved. You know, she she doesn't she didn't open with the puppy throat slitting. 
She didn't open with the burning of clothes or the uh, or the pressing of an iron to one's face or the smashing over the head with a frying pan. You got you to gotta wait for those treasured love experiences. She acted the part of a devoted girlfriend driving him home when he couldn't walk after a night's drinking, cooking him and his kids wonderful meals, caring for his kids when he was at work. You know, she, she made herself indispensable to him. You know, or, or his children liked her, you know, got along well with uh, her kids. Everything's great. Until he decides to play some darts at the bar. Look what you made me do, Pricey. I slit all the kids' throats because you just couldn't call it quits in game three like you promised. No, things continue to be okay for a bit. In late 1995, John invites Catherine to move into his uh, family house with him. John owns a three-bedroom brick bungalow at 84 Andrews Street, Aberdeen. It had a full-length veranda. In front of the house, a smaller veranda out in the back. It was a far nicer house than Catherine's small house with its macabre furnishings. It was not long after she moved in uh, that the fighting began and the accusations of Catherine uh, of infidelity or by Catherine of infidelity. You know, Uh, these fights would lead to separations and then the, uh, you know, inevitable making up. Then things would be calm for a while. Then once again, the fighting and the drinking would escalate. Same pattern. 1998, Catherine begins to badger John to marry her. He consistently refuses, which really pisses her off, unbeknownst to uh, John, who still doesn't realize that Catherine may actually be the devil. Uh, has been secretly videotaping some items John uh, had at his home that he had stolen from work, like like little things, like inconsequential shit, like a first aid kit. And Catherine is videotaping this because she planned on using this video to blackmail him into marrying her, as one does when they are an absolute maniac. Uh, well, after a particularly nasty fight, which culminated in John actually hitting Catherine and, uh, uh, Catherine and throwing her out of his house, she does take this video to his employer, Shows it and gets him fired from the job he's had for 17 years. Normally, I am strongly against men hitting women, but is Catherine a woman or more of a demon? Uh, and I'm guessing he hit her uh, out of self-defense. I don't know. She's probably trying to fucking bash his brains in with a frying pan. Maybe stab him with one of her butcher knives. Yeah. Uh, or, I mean, I guess it's possible he was not a saint himself. Maybe the, the, the demonic violence, you know, or domestic violence, both, was flowing in both directions. So much dysfunction here. It's, it's impossible uh, to tell exactly what was going on. A few months later, John is, is able to get a new job. He actually starts dating Catherine again. Why would you do that? I guess maybe small-town options. I mean, I know there's more to it than that. But God, I feel like if you'd been living in like a bigger town where there's just a lot more women, why would you ever go back to someone in that situation? Then after dating again, uh, but not living together for over a year, uh, they do break up for reals. They have a for reals breakup when Catherine stabs him in the chest, which I think is a, is a strong reason to break up. Getting stabbed in the chest. Hard to come back from that one. Uh, On Tuesday morning, February 29, 2000, John applies for and is granted an apprehended violence order. You know, like, uh, uh, I guess, I'm trying to think of the equivalent equivalent is in the U.S. Um, It's one of those uh, fucking whatever. I'm blanking on it now, but it's whatever thing you get when you're like, no, you can't come within 100 yards of me. Restraining order. Thank you, Joe, for putting that in in my ear holes. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So he gets a restraining order at Scones Magistrate's Court against Catherine to keep her away from him, his children in his house. He takes his kids to stay at a friend's house just in case Catherine comes by. And then he jokes with his coworkers uh, that if he doesn't show up for work on Wednesday, it's because Catherine has murdered him, which will not be funny uh, when they find out what happens. At some point later that day, the police visit Catherine at her home, uh, advise her of the restraining order that John has, you know, taken out. Warn They warn her she'll be arrested if she goes anywhere near him. His kids are his house, and she doesn't give a fuck. Uh, she decides to seduce and murder him. She heads out, buys herself some sexy black lingerie. 
slips into his house carrying large casserole dishes and her butcher knives. As if she's, you know, getting ready for a big family dinner party, which in a way is uh, exactly what she was kind of putting together. She visits one of her kids, Natasha, uh, after that, uh, takes Natasha out for dinner, films herself with her granddaughter that afternoon, uh, where in the video footage, she, uh, she looks straight into the camera and says, I love all my children. I hope I see you all again. She's clearly planning this stuff out. She leaves two of her other kids with Natasha to spend the night, even though they did not have pajamas, school uniforms, anything that they would need to, for a sleepover. Natasha agrees. Natasha recalls sensing her mother was unstable and actually uh, told her mother, I hope you are not going to kill Pricey and yourself. Price's children were with their mother on this night, so it would just be the two of them in the house if Catherine were to sneak in, which she does. Uh, John arrives home late that night. He's relieved to find no sign of Catherine. He's been invited to a neighbor's house for dinner, doesn't make it back to his house until about 11 p.m. And then after he falls asleep, Catherine, who's been fucking hiding, creeps into his bedroom, wearing the lingerie, crawls into bed with John, seduces him. She'd later say they had, quote, pleasurable sex. And then after John drifts into an exhausted and satisfied sleep, things stop being pleasurable uh, at all. Uh, and now for this next part, let's go into an old segment I actually sadly forgot about until a time sucker wrote it and reminded me about it. It's going to be time for some super scary stuff right after today's last sponsor. Uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. We've been digging into a lot of true crime lately, like today's episode on Catherine Knight, and wouldn't you know it, The Great Courses Plus has a great new true crime course called Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. Uh, I recently talked about a lecture from this series, lecture number five, being on, uh, on uh, Lizzie Borden, you know, uh, which is our recent suck topic. Well, today... Uh, I recommend another lecture from this course, lecture number 24, The Past, Present, and Future of Forensics. Everyone knew that Catherine committed the crime we talked about, uh, or we're about to really talk about it today. Uh, this is going to be an open and shut case, but sometimes not so easy. So how are forensics being used to catch predators? How will they be used going forward? Information we touched on in the Golden State Killer case. Well, uh, listen to Professor Elizabeth Murray, some with nearly 30 years of experience in forensics, a forensic anthropologist whose work as an instructor for the Armed Forces Institute of uh, Pathology. She's appeared on National Geographic, the Discovery Channel, so much more, and she will break it all down for you. I highly recommend watching or listening to this lecture from The Great Courses Plus. It's going to give you that much more of an understanding about so many of the topics we dive into, all these true crime episodes. Uh, with The Great Courses Plus, you'll get unlimited access to stream this and any of their other thousands of lectures Watch or listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. You're going to love the Great Courses Plus. I know many of you time suckers already uh, love it. I've been talking to you after shows about how you're already listening to these lectures. Well, now you can get a special free month of unlimited access. To start your free month trial, sign up through thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. So sign up today. You know, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck and be sure to check out Forensic History. And the link, of course, in the episode description. And now, of course, we are going to head on to uh, or into today's super scary stuff, the murder of John Price. Super scary stuff. All right, listener, beware for the next several minutes. Seriously, shit is going to get exceptionally gruesome. After John Price falls asleep, following having sex with the woman he just went to the police to get a restraining order against, Catherine reaches under the nightstand, pulls out one of the butcher knives she had placed there earlier that day, one of the knives she had brought specifically to butcher Pricey with, one of the knives she's had hanging above her bed for years, like a fucking psychopath. 
She raises the knife high, plunges it down into Pricey's chest. This is how he wakes up for the last time, to a knife being slammed into his chest. Maybe just a slightly better way to wake up than uh, than the New Orleans Axe Man murder victims, you know, woke up with an axe to the head. Uh, Pricey wakes to find himself bleeding, staring into the maniacal eyes of Catherine. He then manages to, to push her off, scrambles out of bed, attempts to flee his house, but Catherine is on top of him. She sleeps out of the she leaves out of the bed. She's chasing him, stabbing him over and over and over again. His bloodied handprints line the walls of their house as he attempted, terrified, to steady himself and escape from Catherine's relentless attack. At one point, John manages to open the front door, stagger outside, only to be dragged back into the hallway by Catherine. Uh, excuse me, all in all, she stabs him 37 times. Leaving his dead body in the hall, Catherine then goes back upstairs, washes and gets dressed. She takes his debit card, goes to an ATM, withdraws the maximum uh, daily amount, a thousand bucks. And what, what a moron there, by the way. Like, he just spoke to the police about you yesterday. He just, he just got a restraining order on you, Catherine. And they have cameras on ATMs. Like, she's out of her mind. She's just in a fucking murder rage. She's completely out of her mind. Like, how could she think she was going get, to get away with any of this and be able to spend any of that money? After grabbing the money she was clearly never going to spend, she returns to the bloody scene of her crime. Uh, you know, he may be dead, but she is far from done. She she drags John's naked body into the living room, sharpens her knives on the old Norton sharpening stone. She's mentally clearly back in the slaughterhouse, right? She's just checking in for a shift, you know, preparing for a little bit of butchering, uh, just going to work at this point, just clocking in, no big whoops. Who cares that it's a human? Using the skills she acquired over the years at various abattoirs, she painstakingly, beginning at his collarbone, methodically skins him. This was a process that took well over 40 minutes, uh, they would they would say. Uh, she took all uh, of his skin off, like like off of his ears. I don't even know how you do that. Face, neck, penis, scalp. <sighs> uh, she then, she then hung, hung the skin that, that now re- resembles some kind of fucked up human suit on a stainless steel meat hook on a door that separated the dining room and the living room. And I guess, you know, she, she took his complete ears off, not like the – I don't know, actually. Uh, they didn't really specify. I'm guessing that. But, man – I mean, think about this. Not only is this a human being she's, she's doing this to, this is a man she's dated off and on for several years, a man she claimed to love, someone whose children she is close to, uh, someone she's had sex with hundreds of times, she's partied out at the bar with him, sat down, had breakfast with him, joked with his friends, heard all his jokes, listened to him complain about his job, talk about plans for the future, and then she's just skinning him like she's going to make a fucking rug out of him. Uh, what is her mood while she's doing this? Is she, is she laughing, crying? Does she look bored, just back, you know, doing her job? I don't know. Has she fantasized about this for weeks, months, her entire adult life? You know, uh, since, since she was a kid, since her stepdad worked at the uh, slaughterhouse. We're going to find out towards the end of the epi- uh, episode. She may have had the, this may have been a, a sexual fantasy, sexual-ish type fantasy, a, a long time in the works, this, doing this kind of thing. Catherine finished getting her ex-boyfriend, chops uh, his, his skinned head off, places it in the casserole pot she brought over the previous afternoon, begins to cook his head with a selection of vegetables. No big whoops. Just, you know, just cooking his head. But whatevs. From John's buttocks, she, she takes three steak-sized pieces, sets about peeling and preparing more vegetables. With the meal cooked, she lays the table for two, labeling the settings with the names of John's kids. She makes fucking two steaks out of his butt, butt of his ass. My God, and this is her plan. She's going to feed him to his own kids. She's a fucking monster. Uh, on each plate, she sets a baked potato, cabbage, baked pumpkin, yellow squash, zucchini, grilled buttock steak, some gravy. Then her meal prep all done, she swallows a large amount of pills. Uh, sleeping pills, lays down in the bed in the guest room at the end of the house, and she hopes never to wake back up. The following morning, when John doesn't show up for work, alarm bells go off. You know, people know that she's been he's been talking about her possibly trying to kill him. His neighbor, who John had spent the previous evening with, uh, is concerned that John's car is still in the driveway at 7 a.m. 
John's boss sends a worker around to John's house. Together with the neighbor, they try knocking on John's bedroom window to wake him up. And then they notice blood by the front door, and then they call the police. These poor police. Nothing could have prepared these poor small-town police for what they're about to see. They the force entry into John's house through the rear door, walk into hell. They find John's uh, skinned and headless body in the living room, lying on his back with his legs crossed. This is truly something out of a horror movie. Can you imagine walking into some Hannibal Lecter, Silent of the Lambs kind of shit? Some Ed Gein kind of stuff? Man, do those images ever go away after you've seen them? On the door, they find his skin hanging like a wetsuit on a hook. Uh, his face is a rubber mask devoid of a skull to give it shape. Pubic hair around an empty carcass of a penis. In the kitchen, they discover his skinned head in a large, still warm aluminum pot surrounded by veggies. On the kitchen table, the, the plates of food set out for the kids. Their names written by the side of each plate. Another buttock steak is found out in the lawn, out in the backyard. Many think that Catherine had cooked this one for herself. Maybe threw it out back when the taste didn't suit her. On the top shelf of a cabinet next to a photograph of John and the kids was a bloodstained, poorly written note falsely accusing John of having sexually abused his and her children, which is not true. Poorly thought out, desperate plan. You know, maybe she thought of that before the killing, thought that the, the police would see her as some kind of hero for doing what she did to uh, an alleged child molester. <sighs> Catherine is discovered snoring noisily in a comatose condition is immediately conveyed to the hospital. On March 6, uh, 2000, Catherine is uh, thrown a parade. Uh, for having protected kids from a predator. Songs are sung around the town of Aberdeen. For she's a jolly good fellow. For she's a jolly good fellow. No. No, fucking of course not. No, on March 6, 2000, after waking up from an apparent suicide attempt, she's charged with John Price's murder. Despite exhaustive questioning, Catherine denies having any recollection, recollection excuse me, of the events that night beyond having good sex, in which they, uh, you, know, you know, she said they both came. And now let's pop back out of today's super scary stuff. At her first court hearing on February 2nd, 2001, Catherine enters a plea of not guilty. Uh, not guilty. She's got some balls. But Catherine, uh, your bloody fingerprints are all over the house. No. And you brought your own knives from home to kill and butcher John. And they left him there. Uh, your bloody fingerprints are all over your knives. Uh, n- n- no, I didn't. You were found in the house with John's blood all over you. N- n- no, I wasn't. Not guilty. Not guilty, Your Honor. Uh, initially, Catherine offers to plead guilty to manslaughter. But this plea is rejected by the prosecution. Her trial date set for October 15, 2001. When the trial begins in October, the presiding judge, Justice Barry O'Keefe, offers prospective jurors the option of being excused owing to the graphic nature of the photographic evidence, which five accept. Then the following day on October 16th, Catherine changes her plea to guilty and the jury is dismissed. At the sentencing hearing, uh, Catherine's lawyers uh, request that Catherine be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts. The application is refused. How fucking dare they even ask? You did that shit, Catherine. Now it's too upsetting for you to, to hear about the dirty deeds you committed. Ah, fuck you, lady. When a doctor takes the witness stand and describes how she had skinned and decapitated John, Kathleen, uh, Catherine becomes hysterical Starts screaming in the courtroom. Has to be sedated. Uh, hopefully it wasn't an act. Hopefully she's truly haunted by what she did. A distinguished criminal psychologist said that Catherine, or Catherine suffered from borderline personality disorder. Uh, but knew exactly what she was doing when she murdered John. Borderline personality disorder is defined as a mental illness marked by an ongoing pattern of varying moods, self-image, and behavior. These symptoms often result into, uh, in impulsive actions and problems in relationships. People with borderline personality disorder may experience intense episodes of anger, depression, 
and anxiety that can last from a few hours to uh, days. Intense periods of anger. Yeah, I say that describes Catherine. Borderline personality disorder, further defined as people uh, with, this, with this disorder, also tend to view those uh, things in extremes, such as all good or all bad. Their opinions of other people can change quickly. An individual who is seen as a friend one day may be considered an enemy or a traitor the next. These shifting feelings can lead to intense and unstable relationships. Yep, that uh, sounds like what we've been listening about or listening to. Uh, other signs or symptoms may include efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, such as rapidly initiating intimate or physical or emotional relationships or cutting off communication with someone in anticipation of being abandoned. A pattern of intense, unstable relationships with family, friends, loved ones, often swinging from extreme closeness and love, idealization to extreme dislike or anger, devaluation, uh, intense and highly changeable moods with each episode lasting from a few hours to a few days, we just said, inappropriate, intense anger, problems controlling anger, difficulty trusting, which is sometimes accompanied by irrational fear of people's intentions. I mean, yeah, all this stuff sounds uh, like Catherine. I remember one teenager I worked with years ago uh, in my brief foray into wanting to be a social worker or counselor um, who had this condition, who had borderline personality disorder, was diagnosed with it. And she would just, she would meet like another kid who'd just been put in this group home. And then within like half an hour, she would just consider this kid her best friend. And it would, every time I saw it, she was like a repeat kind of visitor in the place I was working. Uh, Yeah, these kids would get fucking freaked out. They would think she was kind of cool for a second and then it'd be like, whoa, easy, a little bit much. And then she would hate them. And then, you know, when, when they're, when the, uh, the love that wasn't matched, then she would just get, you know, crazy angry against them, uh, towards them. Sounds like Catherine, man. She drew these guys in. She loved them, you know, intensely, almost immediately, fucked her brains out, cooked a nice meal, super sweet to their kids. It was great. And then as quickly as she would fall for them, she would turn on them. And when she turned, her hatred was just as intense as that love you know, she'd push them away, then panic, then beg for forgiveness, love them intensely again, just over and over and over again. What a terrible roller coaster for everyone involved. No thanks. Fuck that drama. If you're in a relationship like that, get away. Get out. I, I dated someone for about a year who was somewhat like that. Not borderline personality sort of level, but like very crazy roller coaster moods. Big fights, big apologies, crazy accusations, followed by big apologies, you know? And life is too short for that bullshit. Get yourself some stability. It is out there. Little bit of intensity, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with some passion. But, you know, that love you, hate you, love you again, fucking, nah, no thanks. Be gone, Lucifina. Uh, a few other interesting notes about the trial. Police found a video called Resurrection, which Knight had rented and was compiled. It was just like, kind of like one of those Faces of Death videos. That stuff that would just float around in like the late 80s, early 90s. It was just compiled footage uh, featuring scenes of decapitation, murder, and revenge. Dr. Delaforce, one of the psychiatrists who evaluated Knight, thinks that Knight just copied much of what she saw in this footage, like used, you know, became her fantasy this, to act out what she saw in this footage. Uh, he also believed her killing, uh, that Catherine's killing of Mr. Price and the mutilation of his body were premeditated acts of revenge and uh, perverted pleasure derived from her grossly violent fantasies. In addition, he stated that these violent acts had nothing to do with her borderline personality disorder as this horrific act was part of her nature. At the end of the hearing, Justice O'Keefe said the last minutes of John Price's life must have been a time of abject terror for him. As they were a time of utter enjoyment for her, she has not expressed any contrition uh, contrition or remorse. And if released, she poses a serious threat to the security of society. And then on on November 8th, 2001, Justice O'Keefe sends Catherine to life imprisonment in order that her papers be marked never to be released. And this was the first time such a sentence had been enforced on a woman in Australian history. Uh, and then in June of 2006, Catherine uh, appealed her life sentence and was released, and she's currently working at the slaughterhouse just outside of Sydney. 
She's dating a man named David John V. No. Yeah, right. Uh, no, the judges in the New South uh, Wales Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed her appeal. She did appeal. Justice McClellan wrote in his judgment, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. And then he said, I hope you rot in hell, you evil bitch. He didn't say that last sentence, but he, I, I bet he thought it. I bet he thought it. Uh, Catherine is currently detained in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in Sydney, in the Sydney metropolitan area anyway, uh, where she uh, works as a cleaner and is apparently a model prisoner. We'll talk about that a bit more at the very end. She just turned 63 years old, and that takes us out of today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. It's pretty crazy, right? The police officers who discovered that brutal scene deeply traumatized. Uh, one officer never returned to work. That was his last day on the job. Can't blame him. Uh, Bob Wells, the detective sergeant in charge of the investigation, still sees a counselor to deal with the trauma he suffered to seeing what she had done to John Price. I can only imagine how scared the town of Aberdeen was for a while. Uh, I imagine they still talk about Catherine Knight from time to time. I hope her kids moved far away after their mom was arrested. I mean, it takes decades to overcome that kind of stigma in a little town. Your name might be smeared for fucking 50 years or more. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I first heard of this topic, I immediately wondered, what will the idiots of the internet think about Catherine Knight? Well, let's find out now. Idiots of the internet. Under a 44-minute documentary with almost 7 million views on YouTube, I watched for this week's episode titled, uh, Cannibal Killer, Catherine Knight, Dad's Head for Dinner. You can imagine there's a lot of comments. The first one that caught my eye was from Lauren Hatter, who posted, okay, if someone kills a puppy, oh no, she says, uh, I guess I should try and say it. Okay, if someone kills a puppy or any other type of smallish animal, then they should preemptively be put in a psychiatric ward or prison because they are the people that will end up killing humans. Ah, I'm with you on the puppy, Lauren, but I'm not with you on the smallish animals. What about chickens? You know, chicken killers, need to be locked up, we're all, we're all in a lot of trouble. What about duck hunters? What about people who've shot squirrels or groundhogs? If that is the case, then me and every, one of, every member of, of my family for previous generations uh, should have all been locked up or should be locked up. Uh, how about pets? How about we monitor people who slice the throats of pets, biggish and smallish? I'm, I'm a lot more worried about someone slicing the throat of a Labrador than I am about someone snapping the neck uh, of a chicken. Ah, shit. God dang it. Uh, here, sorry, guys. Uh, I hear somebody uh, running towards the door. Fucking chicken gel. Bok, bok, playboy. Bok, bok. Look here. Uh, don't appreciate the lack of respect for the peck. Gotta make that clear. How a chicken life less than a dog or cat? How a peck got more value than a deal with a rat? Life is full of living. Chicken heart don't keep beating. If chicken wings you keep eating. You feel? You dig? You hear where I'm coming from? Ah, I'm sorry, chicken gel. I like chicken. Uh, I know you uh, have a pet chicken, but I, I really do enjoy chicken wings. I guess, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe I should stop stop eating them. No, ba-ba, playboy, ba-ba. I just fuck with you a bit. Mr. Defensive about his wings and shit. Chicken Joe, love a wing attender. Even my pet bird don't eat a drumstick one with a family member. Shit, I got a gripple dick to set straight before it get late. Uh, huh. That was uh, Chicken Joe teasing me about eating chicken. And apparently letting me know that he he does eat chicken and maybe his pet chicken does as well. Got to find out if this pet chicken has a name. I bet it's something dignified like Ezekiel, maybe Rutherford. Uh, anyway, sorry about that, you guys. Uh, Lady Axe 13 cracked me uh, the hell up by posting, where is a brutal wife beater when you, when you need one? If there was ever 
a good place for that particular post, this comment section is it. Well played, Lady Axe. The one time a brutal wife beater would have come in handy to stop Catherine Knight from him being a brutal man killer. Uh, user Amajit Singh has an interesting question. Why the violence against animals in slaughterhouses is not counted as violence? Uh, it is. I think it is counted as violence. But for those of us who eat meat, it's necessary violence. Those, uh, those walking steaks aren't going to put themselves down. Uh, if we want tasty fillets, someone has to kill them. Pretty, pretty obvious, right? Not to user uh, Blockman GoPro, it's not. He posts, I don't know much about slaughterhouses, but I think they do it for food for the human race. Yeah, they, they, they do. They do. For sure they do. Yep, uh, you don't need to know much about slaughterhouses to understand that. Uh, yes, of course they do it for the human race, you jackass. Why else would they do it? Uh, why would you need to qu- qualify that statement? Do you think that slaughterhouses kill animals for fun? Or, you know, I don't, I don't even get wh- why you felt the need to type that. User long tail animation knows even less about slaughterhouses, posting, slaughterhouses are more torture than violence. Hunting is pretty violent unless you are in a pack of dogs, wolves, or bear. Most hunters try to kill their food quick, and get it done with, slaughterhouses have a lot of unnecessary torture before they kill. What the fuck are you talking about? Wolves and bears kill their prey in a far more violent manner than how it's done in slaughterhouses. Small animals like chickens, they're electrocuted. Uh, Big animals like cows, shot in the head with a bolt gun. Uh, Or in certain slaughterhouses like the one Catherine uh, worked in, you know, their their throats are cut. They're not tortured. Like, what what do you think happens? That they're tied up to a wall in a slaughterhouse, you know? Some dude comes out wearing a gimp mask. You ready, you moo-moo motherfucker? You ready for some pain? First, I'm going to slice off your nipples, cow, all four of them. Then I'm going to stick some firecrackers in your butthole, cow. It's torture time here at the slaughterhouse. <laughs> I'm going to kill some of your friends in front of you. I'm going to blast some Triple M while I do it. This is it. Make no mistake where you are. This is it. Your back's to the corner. This is it. Don't be a fool anymore. This is it. The waiting is over, over. And if you're thinking, hey, that's not Michael Motherfucking McDonald. That's Kenny Loggins. No, it's Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald. Two bearded angels sent out from heaven to add big, bright beams of audio sunshine to your heart muscles. You met McDonald twice today. You knew it was going to be a rough episode. Uh, user Alyssa Lynn, more upset about the puppy than she is about the skinning of a human being posting, hold up, she killed a guy's dog and he let her go alive after that? Uh-uh, someone kills my dog, they can expect the same. Mm-hmm. This comment gets a thousand likes and most of the replies, uh, or more replies than any comment I've seen in a while, uh, C4Hoot5 replies with, someone kills anything I love, they beg for mercy. I torture, I beg for FOF, more mercy. Cut off legs, keep begging. Cut off fingers, keep going. Cut off arms, keep begging. Cut out parts of body, keep begging. I will then <laughs> gouge out eyes, then cut off head. Okay, maybe work more on literacy than on murder fantasies. Murder murder fantasies. Maybe I need to work more on speaking than fucking working on researching podcasts. Uh, I love how people often react more strongly to violence against pets than violence against humans. Uh, I do, I do that myself. I do find myself fantasizing about murdering anyone who would hurt one of my dogs, Penny Pooper or Ginger Bell, you know, but it is pretty messed up that we care more, uh, for them or seem to in moments than other humans. Like how jaded have we become to human violence when we can hear this story and think, ah, it's fucked up about that dude getting stabbed 37 times and skinned and cooked. But for real, what about the puppy? 
the puppy that hurt no one. I mean, yeah, not, not cool about the dude. For sure not cool about the dude. But how scared was that puppy when that evil wench grabbed it and put a knife to its throat? I mean, sure, that would fucking suck to get, you know, you know cut up in your home and, you know, have someone try and feed you to their family. But what about the dog? I'll leave you with this. this, this uh, the, the weird, unexpected triggers some people have that really cracked me up. User Rod Noble's posts, maybe it's their accents, but I don't think it's appropriate for the interviewers referring to Price as Pricey. Even if that was his nickname, if you weren't his friend in life, you shouldn't call someone you never met by a nickname. Where have you fucking found that rule? What are you even talking about? All the shit in this story, you maniac, and you're upset that the narrator is calling John Price Pricey. That, that's what people called him. And it's not a negative nickname. Like, it'd be one thing if they called him like Lil Fella or Needle Dick or Shit Whistle. You know, some weird insulting nonsense. That would be, you know, in poor form. If the narrator was like, late in the evening of February 29th, 2000, Catherine Knight snuck into Shit Whistle's bedroom and fucked his brains out. Then she took out a knife and stabbed the bejesus out of Shit Whistle. And the Shit Whistle would whistle no more. That would be disrespectful. But, uh, you know, but Pricey, Pricey's not a, not a big one. What does big deal with Pricey? Uh, Brit Brat TV shares my sentiment and eloquently replies uh, to Rod Noble saying, it's a nickname. Shut the fuck up, man. Exactly. Shut the fuck up, Rod. Idiots of the internet. Out. Idiots of the internet. So that's it. The dark tale of Catherine Knight, one of the worst women in the history of Australia. Uh, I had this story all wrong when I first heard about it. I pictured Catherine as the, as, as the victim. I pictured her as the beaten wife or girlfriend of some, you know, violent misogynist, you know, and she just took defending herself too far. Uh, you know, that's an old way of, of thinking. I need to get rid of, you know, that women can't be predators. You know, Catherine may have uh, very well been sexually abused growing up. You know, there's a lot of uh, info about that, but uh, definitely didn't give her a right to do what she did. My God, you know. Whether whether she was or not, there really is no uh, record also uh, of her being the victim of one of these relationships. I mean, I guess the fighting might have gone a little bit both ways, but she was always painted in every interview or article I found as the aggressor consistently. You know, uh, the the paper trail only leads to medical records of the victims of her abuse, not the other way around. You know, she was, and I'm assuming still is, a deranged butcher, a literal butcher who applied her butcher's trade skills to an actual human being. And, uh, and I get why she was not offered the possibility of parole. Man, if she got out, it would only be a matter of time before she killed again. Or at the very least, savagely beat again. Now, uh, let, let's look over once more what we learned today. And also, look at something new on today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Catherine Knight broke into the home of ex-boyfriend John Price on February 29th, 2000. And after having sex with him and waiting until he fell asleep, she killed him, skinned him, and cooked parts of him. Number two, Aberdeen, Australia, and the communities around Aberdeen were once full of slaughterhouses where Catherine worked and was able to hone the skills that allowed her to skin someone. Number three, Catherine currently sits in prison where she will someday die. She is the first woman in Australia's history to be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Number four, Australia started off as a British penal colony but it was not full of people who had committed crimes like Catherine Knight's crime. It was populated with political dissidents, religious rabble-rousers, and petty thieves like that 70-year-old cheese queen. And number five, new info. Let's talk about pickerism. 
Some true crime enthusiasts who have studied the Catherine Knight case think that Catherine's obsession with her knives was a sign of pickerism. Now, pickerism is sexual interest in penetrating the skin of another person with sharp objects, such as knives, uh, for sexual pleasure. Pickerism is a form of uh, paraphilia, which is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects or atypical situations, behaviors, body parts, etc. Uh, we talked a little bit about pickerism in the Dahmer episode. He was attracted to people's body parts like their biceps. Uh, the most frequently targeted areas of the body for someone uh, to want to penetrate in this uh, fetish are the breasts, buttocks, or groin. Catherine did cook, you know, his buttocks. Uh, Chikatilo had an extreme form of picarism. The Soviet serial killer could only achieve sexual arousal through stabbing and cutting people. Uh, another serial killer, Albert Fish, who have not sucked yet, uh, had inserted at least 29 needles into his own groin and pelvic region by the time he was caught. Maybe that's what led Catherine into working in these slaughterhouses, you know? It turned her on to cut those animals. Maybe she fantasized about something like that, you know, and then, and then uh, finally got her arrested, you know? Crazy shit, man. Thank God I am not, uh, you know, into anything even remotely like that. You know, a woman's naked body is plenty for me. Uh, good thing for Lindsay, too. Uh, cutting her would not be a turn on. It would make me very sad and get me into a lot of trouble. And so, you know, I guess if you have this, if I can, I don't know, see a therapist, figure out figure out how to cut in a healthy way if there is such a thing, uh, don't be Catherine Knight. Don't be Catherine Knight. Let's, let's get out of here. Time suck. Top five takeaways. First Australi Australian topic has been sucked. Uh, hope the growing Australian suck community enjoyed it. Keep spreading the suck down there so I can uh, show up and tour someday. Catherine Knight, what is she up to now? Let's look at that real quick before bouncing forward. Uh, apparently, the now white-haired woman is known in prison as the Nana. Uh, Sydney author James Phelps' new book on women in prison, Green is the New Black, sheds a lot of light into her current life behind bars. She's found God in prison, of course, how convenient. Uh, paints, knits, helps settle disputes between inmates. She makes headphones in prison. They have some kind of in-prison headphone factory. I doubt they're kicking out fucking Dre's beats, but they're making something. She does that from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., while she works, four guards flank her, watching her every move. She eats lunch. She hangs out in her cell and just knitting and painting. Uh, and as nice as she sounds here, her temper has not faded in prison. An active officer uh, at the prison where she's incarcerated uh, refers to Catherine Knight as, as a prison boss, saying that she's the top boss out of the jail. And the officer said she takes no crap from anyone and will absolutely give it to the guards. And they also say, if you come in to search her cell, she will stand in front of you with a smug face and scream at you. She will demand to watch you search the cell. She will not leave the area saying stuff like, no, I'm fucking staying here. Uh, and uh, you have to use force to get rid of her. So we just leave her and let her watch. Uh, I'm guessing she's also still not a big fan of darts. Thanks again to, Time, to the Time Suck team, the High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Uh, time suck high priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bitelixer, Danger Brain, Space Lizards, Merch Wizards, Access Apparel, Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins. Big thanks to uh, longtime listeners and new Bojangles researchers Kai Beamer and Nick Wenzel. Great work. Get me uh, going on today's episode. Very special thanks also to Time Sucker and anthropologist Taylor Vandergrift. Thank you, Taylor, for the additional information you uh, sent my way. Really, really appreciated. Next week, we go paranormal. Just in time for Halloween, we look at uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, some of the most popular hauntings and possessions they uh, looked uh, into over the course of their very long paranormal careers. I'm already halfway through the research on this one, and uh, it's going to be good. Some spooky shit. Ed, uh, Ed died in 2006 at the age of 79. Lorraine still alive at the age of 91. And this is a summary of their belief in the paranormal, according to Ed. 
If you look at a fan and it's standing still, you can see the propellers very easily. But if the fan starts up, you can't see anything. It's invisible. Spirits are like that. They're on a different vibrational field. They're all around us right now, but you can't see them. But if you were like Lorraine, you could see them clear visually and hear them clear audially. How fun is that? To think that we may be surrounded by spirits at all times, that at any moment could just cross into our plane of existence, or maybe we could cross into theirs. I want you to think about that tonight when you lay down in the dark, try to go to bed. I want you to think about how you're never safe anywhere from spirits. Good night. Sweet dreams. Hope one doesn't get you. Uh, the Ensfield haunting is one of their most uh, famous cases. In August 1977, the Hodgkin family, uh, yeah, uh, Hodgkin, Hodgkin family, I'll have to look it up later. Family reported strange things happened in their house, like dressers sliding across the floor, knocking coming from all over the, the house. They called the police to investigate. The officer who arrived is said to have witnessed a chair rising, moving on its own. Uh, the Warrens visited Enfield in uh, 1978, or Enfield, and they were convinced that it was a real poltergeist case. Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it, Ed said. Uh, they also investigated previous horse suck, the Amityville haunting. They investigated the hauntings around the uh, Perron family, hauntings that, that became the inspiration for the Conjuring movies. Uh, 1971, Carolyn and Roger and their five daughters moved into a large farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. The family noticed strange occurrences happening right away, and that they only got worse over time. Starting with the missing broom, it escalated into full-fledged angry spirits. Fun time. Fun times in the demon house. Get on in here. Come on. Come on. Get in. Fun times in the demon house. Uh, and researching the home, Carolyn claimed to discover that the, the same family owned it for eight generations, during which time many died by drowning, murder, or hanging. When the Warrens were brought in, they claimed the home was haunted by a witch. Things that went on were just so incredibly frightening, Lorraine recalled. The Warrens made frequent trips to the house, but unlike the movie, they did not perform an exorcism. Uh, there was a seance, though. Uh, they, ex- they also examined the haunted doll. That's inspiration for the movie Annabelle. Lots of crazy shit. We're going to talk about all of it next week. And your fucking skin's going to crawl. I am happily nervous about it already. And, uh, and now let's bounce on to today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First update today proves that my insane lies can lead to some real joy. This is from Sweet Sucker Aaron Mayo who writes, Mr. Dr. Reverend Suckmaster, devotee of Lucifina. I write to you in a dark place and last week my sweet foster child with severe trauma had an episode that caused her to be hospitalized. I don't want to go into the details, but with her traumas, let's just say Bojangles himself would tear her bio parents limb from limb and laugh happily as he did so. Anyways, while driving on my way to Portland to transfer her to an inpatient care facility that will hopefully give her more tools to voice her traumas and get them under control, to help her be the best person I know she can be, I was listening to the werewolf suck, and you fucking got me with that stupid shit about the cave paintings and the dog fucking. <laughs> that is one of my most uh, favorite lies. I have pride in being able to say that I can call out your shit with all the other misdirections you've put into past sucks, but this one got me good. I was driving and trying to catch up on sucks and completely fell for it. I'd like to say it was my mindset, but honestly, I would have fallen for it on other circumstances too. It honestly put a genuine smile on my face when I needed it most, and I thank you for that. I write this not only to thank you for helping me from a distance and through time and space, but to also hopefully put a smile on your face as you've defeated yet another skeptical sucker with all your wonderful misdirection, fantastical stories. Please keep doing what you do best and know that you're an amazing suck master, forever faithful, Aaron Mayo, a.k.a. Spawn of Lucifina. Thank you, Aaron, ma'am. I hope that you and especially your foster child are now in a much better place as you hear this. Thanks for being a foster parent, by the way, man. What an amazing uh, you know thing you're doing. 
giving a kid a chance at a new life that they wouldn't have, you know, if you weren't around in the world. So keep being a great meat stack, Aaron. Thanks for being you. And uh, yeah, I, that made me so happy to have so many people fall for my lie about, uh, you know, cave paintings of people fucking dogs back in prehistoric times and how, you know, it wasn't uncommon for, for people to fuck dogs. And that's why it's, it's you know, totally normal to be sexually attracted to, to dogs. Today. Oh, second update proves once again that you have to be careful with how you spread the suck. Uh, we got Matthew, Time Sucker, writing and saying, Hello, my name is Matthew, last name omitted. And I ask that, <laughs> that if you share this story on Time Suck, that you leave, uh, you know, me anonymous. That's why I am leaving your last name uh, out of it. Uh, I am a small town cop from northwestern Ohio. I often work night shift from 6 p.m. until 3 a.m. And on slow nights, I listen to Time Suck on a low volume while patrolling to keep me occupied while literally everyone else in town is asleep. A few weeks ago, I was listening to the episode on the Salem Witch Trials. But on that night, I had my phone louder than normal plugged into the auxiliary port. As I was listening, uh, I received a call about a 911 hang-up, which is nothing abnormal. But I should mention that when I key the mic in my cruiser, the AM-FM radio mutes it by itself. As it turns out, when your cell phone is plugged into the aux port, it does not. I pause the podcast, key the mic to let dispatch know that I am en route to the address I hit play and continue listening. Little did I know that while you went on a rant about fucking animals, man, a lot of uh, a lot of animal fucking stuff, and various forms of bestiality, the hand mic in the cruiser was stuck open, and the entire county can hear you talk about ass fucking goats. <laughs> uh, let me tell you how hard it was to explain to my captain that I was only listening to a deranged man go on and on about how about this and how I do not have an animal fetish. From that day on, I am now sometimes referred to as the beast, not because <laughs> not because I'm powerful, but because of your bestiality talk. Keep on sucking, you filthy fucking animal. I love this so much. Oh. Uh, Oh, man. My mom and stepdad, Tim, they leave a police scanner on in Whitebird, Idaho, like 24 hours a day. It's always going. And if if all of a sudden somebody started talking about goat fucking uh, on, the one, on the police channel, they would, they would be talking about it for the rest of their lives. Uh, I, I just love that you are sometimes referred to as the beast because of my talk. Uh, yeah, you know. We must be careful with the fornicating of the goats and with the sexy deer and the mooses and the sexy moose legs and the tight moose vaginas and the daring to be touched and penetrated, Brother Hezekiah. I think that started off Australian, leftover from today, and then hopefully morphed into Salem witchy talk. Uh, thanks for keeping the streets safe, the beast. Love that you sent that in. Uh, made some listeners skin crawl and their buttholes tighten up with a recent sponsor, as Time Sucker James points out with this update. Writing, Master Sucker, I was listening to the chessboard killer suck when you started t- <laughs> when you started talking about Donald McRonald's spider removal. I've never been more horrified by anything you've ever said. For my entire life, I've had an irrational fear of giant spiders forcibly crawling into my asshole. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I'm just a freak. Anyway, I was sitting on my bed trying to write a program in Python for this professor who has no idea how to teach a class when I started listening to the newest episode of Time Suck. You mentioned those goddamn spiders crawling into someone's vagina, and while I don't have one, this hits really close to home with my aforementioned fear. I reacted so strongly, I almost broke my $1,200 laptop and clenched my ass so tight, it's a miracle it didn't fuse together. Congratulations, you have horrified me more than anything I've ever heard or read. Fuck you, James. P.S. If you read this on the podcast, please only use my first name. (laughs) Uh, Only your first name was used, James. Aha! My favorite part of your message was forcibly crawling into my asshole. The word forcibly just paints such a picture, doesn't it? Like I imagine you're tied up, 
for some reason. And then you can just feel a spider just crawling up towards your butt. And you're just like, no, 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 no. And just, just clenching so hard. And the spider gets to your butthole. And you're like, no, no, no. Just clen-. And then the spider just like, uses this little spider legs to just like fucking just peel open your butthole. And some other little spider crawls in there. Just not nah, let him in. No. Ah, oh, man. Ah, sorry, James, but not sorry at all. Uh, I got another time stuck with another lie. Dominic Perella was trying to figure out what kind of nonsense organization tries to literally let people get away with murder just because they had a head wound earlier in life. Dominic writes, you got me. Headforthetruth.org. Over 100 episodes. I never bought into your nonsense, but this one did it. I even started Googling it. I even started Googling it during the show. Good one, Dan. Thank you, Dominic. You're not alone. A lot of people. A lot of people fell for the Head for the Truth horseshit. Okay, two more. First, Katie from the Andrew Jackson episode wrote back, and I was so happy to hear from her. She writes, Master Sucker, okay, I'm finally writing back. Yes, I'm still a listener. I, too, try to be a reasonable human, listen to all sides, and, of course, I agree that Andrew Jackson is a complex human. Like all of us, well, most of us. When I wrote to you, I was only halfway through the episode, so I didn't have your whole take. But I still stand by most of what I wrote. I still think Andrew Jackson was a piece of shit. And honestly, he still gets most of the blame for the Trail of Tears, although I know now, thanks to your episode, that he wasn't the mastermind. He was absolutely, though, the one with the power to veto. Well, I have to apologize to you here, Katie. He kind of was the mastermind, I guess. It seems like he was a pusher of this idea more than I realized when I uh, recorded the episode. Martin Van Buren, his vice president and successor, is quoted as saying, regarding the, the Trail of Tears, there was no measure in the whole course of Jackson's administration of which he was more exclusively the author. So, sorry about that. Uh, well, I don't know that he that he wanted it to go down as it did. I don't know that he didn't either. Uh, Katie continues, and and I didn't ever get the impression he didn't still hate Native Americans, even if he did raise some. But yes, he was complicated. I still think he shouldn't be on our twenty dollar bill and laughed about your reasoning for this. And I especially don't think his portrait should be hanging in the office of our orange leader as some sort of hero. Anyways, thanks for responding. I think in the end, I sort of liked your take on Jackson, although I still think he was human garbage. War heroics and wife loving don't trump the other stuff, in my opinion. Keep on sucking. I know I will. Katie, last name redacted. P.S. Our family says wackadoodle too. Maybe it's a Pacific Northwest thing. Thank you, Katie. Yes, I, I do think maybe wackadoodle is a Pacific Northwest thing. And I really respect your take on Andrew. Uh, I, I do. Uh, I do realize, as, as you know, that it's much easier for me to have the take I do not being African-American or, or American Indian. I, I realize that. With Jackson, I, I think I got more caught up in the principle of needing to look at the context of the time someone lives in before evaluating their role in history I feel like I got caught up more with the premise of that than actually in the life of Andrew Jackson specifically. I mean, yeah, the dude was rough. You know, he stuck to his guns, literally, whether he was right or not or moral or not. And, and, and you know, he did help keep America free from the British, but he was also, yeah, a huge asshole in many ways. I mean, a lot of his, his contemporaries thought so. Um, and man, I never knew he would cause me so many problems. Uh, now I know. And I, and I do like that I know. And I, and I like the, you know, people like you writing, Katie, and make me reevaluate the way I think about historical figures. So thank you for that. And last one, last one, just had so many good ones. Time sucker Tyler McMinn also got tricked with my head for the Truth Foundation, and he did this because of that. He says, you motherfucker, you got me. On the Chessboard Killer podcast with the head for the Truth Foundation to work for lesser sentences when someone has a proven head trauma leading to violent crime, I have had several concussions from kickboxing and jujitsu over the years, and on one particular nasty cycling fall that landed me in the ICU for a week, it shattered my nose, tore my upper lip, and fractured my orbital bone surrounding my left eye. I only mention this because of a recent incident where during an MMA sparring session, I could not stop myself from nearly choking a good friend of mine well past unconsciousness and had to be pulled away. Since the incident, I found myself several times a day just sitting and thinking about how great it would be just to choke a random annoying stranger I see walking alone or friends and even smaller family members, I like smaller, until they grow cold. 
And if you believe that, then you know how I felt when you were fucking with me earlier. Truth is, I've endured all those injuries and throughout more throughout my life. But while I do enjoy a good choke out on a mat, I would never, ever lose control because that is what a psycho does. Bok, bok, playboy. Keep on sucking. Uh, yeah, well, thank you for Tyler. Uh, first time I read that, you did get me. I was uh, looking for stuff for the episode. Yep, you did. Deserved. It was deserved. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's it for today. Talk to you space. It is on Thursday. A little more on chemtrails to discuss. Have a good week. Uh, and don't take a breakup so hard you decide to kill skin and feed someone to their kids. It's it's a bit much. And keep on sucking. <laughs> Because your penis is now just a fucking rugged chew toy of a dick. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.